All right, everyone. Looks like we are live. Let's double check just to make sure. But I see my nifty new logo I made working. Everybody here present and accounted for. Let me get let me get center of camera. Yeah, yeah, that looks good. All right, looks like Wayne and I are both transmitting fine. Uh, the Great Baldini is supposed to be joining us at some point, but I don't think he's home yet, so we'll give him a little bit. Anyway, welcome to the 10th Secrets of Saturn livestream. Tonight we'll be discussing nostalgia programming in 1980s television. And believe me, especially if you're old enough to remember, there's a lot of it. I won't be taking a lot of time to mention anything about our sponsor other than to say uh, I'm still getting about four miles per gallon more with Lower the Friction, which is this right here. So if you go there and want to give it a shot in your engine, uh, it is $59.99 with promo code SOS. You get 5% off. I hope you give it a try because Randy from Houston is a great dude and I'm trying to help everyone get off the ground here. So anyway... I think everything is working fine. I'm finally starting to get the hang of OBS a little bit, and uh, hopefully it looks good and sounds good on your end. If there's any problems, by all means, chat room, let me know. So to start off, <clears throat> for those folks out there who think that what we are going to discuss tonight is taking things a bit too far, the truth is that nothing gets into mainstream anything, be it radio, film, books, television, whatever, anything that is released and being pushed by the big corporations, it's being done so for very specific reasons. Now, sometimes it's just to make money, but most of the time there's at least some sort of ulterior motive there. Wayne, do you have any opening statements? Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Secrets of Saturn Live. A big shout out to our sponsor, uh, Randy from Houston, with uh, his wonderful product, Lower the Friction, at lowerthefriction.com. Put in promo code SOS and get 5% off your order. And also a nice shout out to the Fringe FM uh, and our buddy Joe Roop over there. Absolutely. So uh, let's, let's get on with the program. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to cover. The 80s was a big decade, especially when it comes to social engineering and culture creation and, you know, all that good, fun stuff. Absolutely. Lots and lots of good stuff. Let me check the... Uh... Let me check the chat room, make sure everything is... Oh, no. I knocked you off. This I hate the way that does that. If I bump Don't the Skype... Don't be knocking the chat if room I, if I, Not the chat room, the Skype. If I if I bump the wrong thing, it knocks you off because for some reason OBS needs needs the Skype forwarded on the on the screen for some reason or else it kicks it off and just puts a white screen. I don't know. I haven't figured that part out yet and I've tried so much to to make it easier, but whatever. Oh, no. Anyway. I'm falling off of the edge of the world. Oh, dear. Uh, all right, see, Big giant there, there white box. All right, I'm just waiting on. Oh, there's the great Baldini. Ah, there's the great Baldini. By the by, the seat of my pants, by the skin of my teeth, <laughs> just sliding right in. So, welcome, yeah. great Baldini. It's a pleasure to be here, don't you know? We we only really just got the very beginning going, saying that if stuff gets pushed by the mainstream media, any kind of mainstream anything. Uh, That's it's there for a reason, and that's pretty much the bottom line, right? Absolutely. Yeah, they, they don't waste any effort or any emotion on anything. So if it's there, it's intended to be there. There's nothing there by mistake or accident, almost categorically. Right, and if something's on, especially mainstream television, which is what we're going to focus on tonight, you've got to think about even back in the 1980s, millions of millions of dollars goes into any show. No matter how crappy it is, 
there's still millions and millions of dollars that go into it. And, and God only knows what goes into shows today. Uh, I was even looking at uh, the new St- uh, Star Trek Picard show, the obscene amount. I think it's like $10 million an episode or something like that is going into that. I mean, good golly, Miss Molly. That's a lot that's of coin. Not, yeah. That is. That's that's a lot of cabbage right there. That, that totally is. That's, that's a cabbage and a two. But uh, anyway, so let's start with our first point. And that's the beginning of the tearing down of the strong male or father figure that began in the 1980s. We see it with comedy first, and one of the big shows, I would say, would be Married with Children. Gentlemen, who wants to take the ball and dribble? I love Married with Children as far as a comedy show. Uh, Al Bundy. Good old Al Bundy. Oh, come on, Peg! (laughs) You picked a good one there because certainly (laughs) that show was iconic and and, uh, became, um, you know, a lot of the uh, a a lot of culture uh, during that period of time was centered around um, Al Bundy and his and his wacky um, family. Scored four touchdowns in one game. Don't forget, Baldy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Living off of his laurels 20-plus years later. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, yeah, there was, uh, a, you know, numerous um, – it, it was a, a thing to be a guest, um, to be a guest uh, appearance on, on that show. Uh, it, it did reach um, nearly every um, American household in one way or another. Even if people didn't watch television, um, they still knew of the characters and, and they knew what the references were. So uh, it became, you know, again, uh, iconic um, uh, television and, and part of the American culture. Oh, absolutely. Right. Those kinds of jokes are still going today. And they got carried over into Futurama because uh, one of the stars of that show was one of the stars of Futurama. But uh, the big point we were trying to uh, break down first here is the fact that uh, in today's society, mainstream society, pushing, good God, they just don't like men very much. They just want to tear them down. Yeah. So, you know, if you compare, I mean, I'm sure we will, but you compare um, the the masculine um, stereotype or, or prototype or from, you know, married with children versus what they have now that, as you mentioned, uh, Jason, was kind of the beginning of the weakening of the of the male figure. And so he's certainly not as, um, I don't want to say panty wasted or whatever. <laughs> you know, I don't want to get, uh, uh, you know, into too much um, – uh, using too many epithets here, don't want to offend anybody, but uh, certainly he was a much weaker character than what had been seen previously, like Fathers Knows Best and uh, Courtship of Eddie's Father and these kind of things that showed a strong masculine um, leader. Uh, and certainly Al Bundy did not um, meet that, um, but it was kind of the beginning of the degradation. You know, he's lazy and fat and, um, you know, uh, not very bright. So um, that really, uh, it, in in large part, began. Um, I mean, even if you go back a little bit further, like All in the Family, right? Um, yeah. Well, Archie Bunker was certainly not anybody to be aspired to. Um, <laughs> he, he was um, he was at least a um, more uh, prototypical, you know, American male. Uh, you know, in the sense that uh, he sort of, you know, I guess say ran the household or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. He was it was the um, more um, um, patriarchal society type situation, whereas uh, and that still bleeds over into Married with Children. It was still sort of a patriarchy in that sense, but he was a much weaker character. 
Right. Now, in the 1970s is when you really started seeing the beginnings of the tearing down of what was portrayed as the typical family. Uh, but in the 50s and 60s, uh-uh. it was it was straight-laced. It was what you assume as the normal nuclear family, mom, dad, children, the family dog. But that's it. Like you didn't mess with that very much back then. You started seeing some weirdness in the 70s. And, and Archie Bunker is actually one of the ones I would say is a, a good example how they started messing with that stereotype because he wasn't like your typical father figure to look up to. I mean the guy was a blatantly rude, uh, a bit on the sexist side. Um I honestly don't remember if he was racist or not, but it uh, wouldn't surprise me if he had been. But that was generally it. He just he was kind of a negative male personality. He was almost like the what what all the people whine about today about toxic masculinity. He kind of was that, uh, even though he really did mean well in the in, in the in the long run of things. I would say, Wayne, sure, yeah, and uh, you could kind of compare and contrast how how far it's come. Uh, through the 80s, when you you come up to uh, Married with Children, sure. you can see how Al Bundy, totally disrespected by the wife and mm-hmm. the children and disregarded, uh, you know, he was kind of last in the pecking order of, of what was going on within the household. So you can see how he became the butt of the joke, and that's a lot of uh, what goes on with this whole social programming bit with it, is the strong masculine figure in the house the the father figure per se becomes the butt of the joke and you know a laughing stock and that's basically what they did through the course of the 80s i mean if you look at the the television shows the sitcoms in the beginning part of the 1980s and go up toward the end when married with children really took off and uh you know had its heyday you could see you know the gradual shifting of the overton window to to this concept and this is basically the good kickoff of where you could see them uh degrading the male role model figure and sure. you know this you know pulls forward to today so well i think but this all, is where it started i think with all Go of ahead. this we we could keep in mind that um the the overt lie here right is that they they claim to be uh, the, these shows claim to be a reflection of american society when it's quite the other way around they're pushing uh, an idea, right? So, so they're setting the the role of what they expect us to be, um, rather than what they're claiming is that it's a, a reflection of American society, and and they keep that claim by um, pushing the idea that um, certain types are not being well represented, people of colors or um, or, or you know um, sexual preferences or whatever. They make uh, a big deal about oh they're not being representative enough, um, but they're uh, it's to give a patina. Uh, of the idea of like the legitimacy that it's it's a representation uh, of what uh, the American family looks like when it's quite the opposite, right? So as we look at all of these shows, um, the entire um, overview is it's quite the reverse. They're setting the bar. They're telling us this is what um, they expect us to be from uh, Married with Children to The Simpsons. And as you keep going through all these things, they're, um, they're giving you a model of what they want you to be. So as we kind of keep that in mind as we uh, approach all of these, you can see what what they're pushing right right that's how culture creation works this is what they do they take the popular media or entertainment of they and uh, they they push in these certain agendas and these certain archetypes in there and they use this to model the public's behavior and this is what happens i mean you know it's this is the thing that people discuss at the water cooler at work or at school the next day or whatever 
they, they watch these TV shows, and that's that's one of the things that goes on in American society. We really don't have a uh, quote-unquote culture per se. Our culture is based upon our entertainment choices, and yeah. that's basically what we talk about, and that's how they use this in order to uh, actually do the culture creation and to steer agendas. This is how social engineering works in spades. And you could just see this one aspect of it just in this one TV show. Like if you watch Married with Children, like through the years, you could see gradually as time goes on, they make more and more of a joke of Al Bundy through the whole thing. Yeah. So, you know, like the first couple episodes, it was not like as blatant as it is toward the end of the series. So that's how this works. Now, that was very blatant and over the top, but what if we step back and look at some of the more um, wholesome-ish kind of shows? Like, let's even look at Mr. Belvedere, uh, where where you have this almost pompous British man coming into a household where uh, the father is uh, was actually a famous, uh, maybe still doing it, I don't even know, but uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but he, he did uh, sports Bob announcements. Bob Euchre. Bob Euchre, yeah. Did sports announcements for years, and he played the main character uh, of the father and (laughs) (laughs) and and he of course uh was butting heads with mr belvedere a lot who was playing the intellectual superior uh so in a way that he was almost putting down the man of the household on a regular basis so you again you see kind of subtle things played for laughs but again the typical american male being torn down a little bit uh can you guys think of any other good examples that we could throw out there while we're still on this point um, I think, it, it, I mean, we've kind of addressed um, sitcoms, right? Uh, and those are some of the more popular things. But there were always, also in the 80s, some iconic shows like Chips, right? The um, California Highway Patrol. Um, and so even even there, right, this is um, uh, kind of one of the, you know, they've always had their sort of, now they have the procedural kind of prior to this. The, the, the had um, Adam 12, right? And, mm, I remember that uh, one. Right? And so, so you you always have the... Um, you know the cop show and, and uh, idealizing them, and they did in the same way this with chips. Although uh, here they um, they introduced the idea these were not uh, in every prior um, you know cop show, if you want to put it that way, or procedural is more what you have now. Um, they were uh, portrayed as very sort of clean cut, uh, hard nosed, um, you know. Uh, by the book guys and uh certainly in chips there was uh, numerous times where they would get into areas of more gray ethics uh and to where you get you know if you look at the again the current things now people um, a lot of the cops are doing um overtly unethical and illegal things uh, and they justify them but this is kind of that that is to my memory one of the first um other than westerns right uh, so one of the first ones where the the supposed law enforcement officers are um facing and doing um questionable ethical things right so again uh, kind of breaking down the uh, the uh, the male role model in, in that regard uh, that they're uh, they're no longer um you know portrayed as uh, ethical and uh, above board you know in all cases Right. Uh, I see people in the chat room mentioning some other shows. Uh, you definitely see a stark difference between the 70s and 80s. Like Columbo is predominantly a 70s show, and that's your typical American white male. But uh, he was very clever. He portrayed himself as a goober on purpose. That was his shtick. But in reality, he was trying to trick people into revealing information so that he could nab the bad guy in the end. So mm-hmm. that's uh, – 
you don't see that stuff uh, once the 80s comes in it starts becoming all big bag bangs and booms and all that kind of stuff uh you know maybe we can more. even look at like the a team as, as an example of that yeah sure a lot more um uh not only violence but yeah big um mel or um uh, uh, Bay, Michael Bay type mm-hmm. <laughs> explosions and that sort of stuff. And <laughs> and notably, notably to me, as I think about it, um, the 1980s is also kind of the last decade of the um, entertainment variety show um, where, you know, where you would have the uh, Barbara Mandrell, like the Mandrell sisters and that sort of thing. That was kind of the last era uh, of that. You really didn't have any of that going forward um, through the decade of the 90s. So it had been a staple of American television going uh, prior, like um, with, you know, Hee Haw. And, uh, but, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you had the Ed Sullivan show, all this sort of stuff. Those yeah. were uh, some of the most popular shows on television. And um, the 80s really were the last gasp um, of that uh, format. Well, The it, Muppet show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Late 70s into the early <laughs> 80s. The, that was yeah. That was one of the the you know variety shows they had, and uh, that kind of uh, that takes a whole different turn in the whole social engineering kind of agenda. You're looking at a puppet, and they're, they're like <laughs> kind of uh, portraying these puppets as with human characteristics, and you, you really buy into these characters. So I mean, you're talking you know, anthropomorphizing an object and making that like an acceptable form of entertainment it really kind of separates your mind from reality in a way now so Wayne, it, what are you trying to say here yeah and certainly one of the uh-huh. things one of the things about cartoons as it um, and animation as it relates to um, social engineering is that it has a much different effect on the psyche um, because it requires your brain to become more involved when the um, the, the less um, uh, the less detailed the animation, and you see this certainly again with The Simpsons and, um, you know, with um, many of the modern animated shows, the less slick it is, the less filled in it is, the more it requires your brain to sort of fill in the blanks, and that makes you more of an active participant, which gets you more involved in it. And that's uh, um, psychologically, again, proven to be uh, much more uh, effective in getting you to accept the ideas that are presented to you because you become an active participant in the show. So um, uh, we, we certainly see that um, some of these uh, less um, less detailed, more, um, uh, well, sort, sort of like, um, again, we're jumping forward, not, not the 80s now, but um, uh, um, South Park and that sort of stuff, the very, very crude animation. Um, but we, we begin to see more of this, again, starting in the 80s. But animation certainly has that effect that it... Um, it psychologically uh, forces you to become uh, more of a participant by filling in those blanks. Well, the right, Simpsons. There's is... a term for this. What? what is... What's the term? I was just saying that there's a term for this. It's called narrative transportation. Sure. Yeah. And uh, it's it's used a lot in uh, the Hollywood uh, circles. Well, so sure. it, it's one of those things where you know the more involved in the story you are, the more vested in it you become, and the more sure, vested yeah. in it you become, the more programmable you are. Right, and that that term is um, you know fully in play with um, all the modern uh, dramas, right? Certainly, the television dramas they present the um, you know the morality issues and get you invested emotionally in it, right? So you have to make these uh, morality choices. Uh, but yeah, narrative transportation is the primary use of television programming. That is that is the programming, right? And you, but certainly begin to see this as since the '80s is our focus here. You see uh, a lot more. Um, um, I think well thought out and uh, very, um, very well planned um, stuff in in the 1980s is where it really shifts from the 70s is sort of a 
to me, kind of a uh, a transition point from the 60s television, 50s and 60s television, into the the more modern television. That 80s certainly is uh, where you see a lot of the transition and and things become uh, much more like they are today. Which is, I suppose, why you chose this decade. Uh, well, this oh, is initially yeah. Wayne's idea, but uh, I'm all about it. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, this is a time that, uh, well, Jason and I kind of grew up in. And, uh, you know, back then we we watched a lot of these things. This was all part of popular culture. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where looking back now with a new set of eyes at it, you could see what was being done to our young, uh, malleable brains. Absolutely. So <laughs> this, well, this is something that needs to be pointed out. Yeah, and since you're talking narrative transportation and looking in the chat, I mean, uh, several people are mentioning MASH, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, we, we could do a, a series of shows to bear, tearing apart <laughs> MASH and the, the impact that it had on uh, the American family and the American psyche, right? Because they were bringing every aspect, tearing apart the wounds of the Vietnam War, um, looking at um, all kinds of morality issues. And, uh, I, you know, I know many people who um, they, they live their lives around MASH and the dinner table, right? They, you know, if, you, if MASH was on, you weren't talking to them, right? So um, it was, um, again, a staple uh, of American culture. Um, but that was a, a really big one in the, in the 1980s um, was, was MASH and, and uh, all the, the narrative transportation that went on through that drama there. And they really, um, you know, pulled your heartstring. I mean, even do you know what the, um, the title of the theme song is? Oh, uh, suicide! Suicide is something. Don't try is a suicide solution. Something I think is the the name of it. Uh, that's an Ozzy song, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. So they put suicide in there, right? Um, of course, they don't tell you the name of the, of the song, but it's um, um, again very, very deeply um, entrenched and uh, very hooked into the into the psyche, um, you know, and certainly. Um, in thinking back, and I mean, again, perhaps this is uh, perhaps um, uh, perhaps a manifestation of my age. I'm a little bit older than you guys, but um, this is where I really began to see more families um, begin to spend dinner time around the television, where um, previous to this, uh, you didn't watch TV until after dinner. It was a nighttime entertainment, um, and you did right. the... You'd, family dinner first and then you know cleaned up or whatever and then you sat down to watch television and this is the this is the decade that i saw many many families begin to take their take their food and in, into the the living room and and have dinner over tv and they stopped the family conversation and if um i, I can tell you personally huge in my, right there in my family that ended um the close-knit ties that our family had the, the dinner conversation ending and that we sat down and had dinner together when that ended um with television um it, it changed the family dynamic irrevocably and i saw this happen in many many other families as well and i think this is again um perhaps again by virtue of my age or but this is the era that i saw it happen um not just to my family but to many others um that they they stopped the family dinner uh, and it became uh, they all stared into the to the television set and um you know eyes glazed over and drooling um and and no longer talk to each other they they live their lives vicariously through these characters on television oh very much so yeah i can, I, I would agree with that assessment that is a uh, you know uh, a large part of the decade of the 80s i mean television was 
one of the big things, like one of the big draws. Hey, did you watch such and such last night? Yeah, did you? Yeah. I mean, like there there were all kinds of big shows, like Miami Vice. That was really popular, and yeah. that yeah. was just very flashy and '80s style, right and there. Everybody and, got their clothes you know, from there, right? That's you. You wanted to dress mm-hmm. Miami Vice those pastel colors. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's it. You know, this is a big part of the culture creation, and you can see where people kind of flocked to the television set in the 80s. I don't think it was like that. Uh, I, I I was very young in the 1970s, so I really don't uh, remember much about the 70s, but I, I just don't recall uh, anything being like so such a draw on people as it was in the 80s with the television. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it didn't seem like it was as big a priority as it became in the 1980s to people. So well, I think it should it's, uh could also be pointed out too that this is really the first decade of cable television uh and yes. so not only do you have a little bit yep. wider variety and so not now you're now you've grown past the, the big three nbc abc and cbs and you had three choices plus one independent plus pbs right in, in most um in most major markets you had the five television stations right uh, you had uh, cbs nbc and abc you had um one independent uh, that played like cartoons and stuff like that, right? Uh, and then you had a PBS station and then some UHF channels, the little uh, low-budget um, things. And then with the uh, intro and advent of cable TV, now you had um, much more risque uh, entertainment brought into the to the home with R-rated movies that kids could could watch. Um, uh, they uh, I can't count how many kids my age um, looked for the um, they they saw their their first look at um, at breasts and bodies with, with the squiggly lines because they didn't have the, <laughs> decoding box and they, that was their <laughs> I remember that I, I remember that it. <clears throat> <laughs> it made you go blind uh, HBO I remember that HBO it's all scrambled you can hear the sound but yeah. you can't see what's going on on the screen well for, for a second every now and then they just kind of unscramble <laughs> just enough and you're like hey um, yeah so <clears throat> That's why we, we need glasses, right, right, Wayne? <laughs> no, is that? But the, these are um, major impact. This is where television really did. Um, this is the first decade again that every single tele, uh, every single family had now more than one television um, in the home. Not just the not just the one in the living room, but you started seeing them in the in the, the bedrooms uh, and in the kitchen even. Um, so they moved past a single television uh, to multiple televisions and uh, cable TV, and uh, it really the entertainment. Uh, change you got video games now um so it really was a whole new ball of wax in the 1980s well if i could just spell correctly here let's try that all right well, i think we kind of beat that one to death any other points on the uh, beginnings of the destruction of the male father figure you want to touch on here gentlemen or shall we move on to the next point well, I think we should probably go on to the next point. We're about a half hour in already, so time's flying by. I'm telling you, just talking about uh, you know these memories we have from the 1980s. Uh, you know, a lot of people could relate to this, and like I said, it, it's important to look at this stuff now. Look back with a new set of eyes and see how you were being manipulated. So that's that's the truth about what it is. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So the second one, when we had our little chat last night, Wayne, that we came up with was the beginnings of showing a lot of artificial intelligence in a little bit more of a realistic way, kind of, sort of, than, say, the 60s or 70s might have shown. And a couple of the shows we threw out uh, as, as examples. Knight Rider. Auto Man. Knight Rider. 
Knight Rider. Of a man who does not exist. <laughs> Before he became this is a German Knight love celebrity Knight singer. Be singing a lot to you. <laughs> hey, don't hassle the Hoff, man. I'm David Hasselhoff. So Auto Man, if you remember that one, that was kind of looking like uh, a takeoff of the movie Tron. Kind of had that look to it. Knight Rider, of course, which is probably going to be the biggest one we can break down. Max Headroom, if you remember that. Oh, I do. Max Headroom, yeah. And uh, another yeah, show that Wayne had to remind TV. me about called Small Wonder. But uh, which one yeah. you want to take first? You want to take the most popular one? We'll do Knight Rider because that's kind of the, the easy one. Uh, while the character of Michael Knight is, of course, front and center as the main character, and he's the kind of kind of undercover spy sort of dude who, you know, I don't remember what, what exactly happened in the first episode, but it was something like he was a criminal and they gave him another opportunity, gave him a, a facelift or something. Yeah, yeah, he had gotten kill, killed or almost killed or whatever, and um, yeah, you, you look like you're ready to go, Wayne. So. No, I'm just, I'm just listening to what you were saying because I'm trying to remember the TV show too. Yeah, I, yeah watched, it's... I remember watching the pilot episode. It was a two-part, you know, two-hour pilot episode. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a big, big deal. But anyway, the, of course, the other main character was Kit. Kit being the, the car, a completely artificially intelligent computer built into his, uh, what was that, a Pontiac Trans Am, I think? Was that, I remember correctly? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it had sort of a I, I don't want to say effeminate but it did sort of have the well kid well, <laughs> hello Michael, <laughs> Michael. well it was a British guy uh, who, who was on another famous show um, was it Mr. Feeney yeah well which one was it was it <laughs> uh, that's Saved oh, by the Bell was, or one uh, of those no it was uh, what was that what, what show was that that Mr. Feeney and it, the, it was more of a kids show what do you call it yeah, it was, it was like a tweeny uh, show. I can't think of the name of it. Maybe somebody in the chat would know what show that was. I'm not remembering. The Wonder Years? Is that what saying? Anyway. No, it wasn't the Wonder Years. But uh, how, how could we forget, and this is like, I can't believe um, we didn't mention this one for artificial intelligence in the 80s, Battlestar Galactica. Because that was 1978. Oh, was it 78? Okay. Now, there was Galactica 1980, but I think I think everyone who oh, remembers it so doesn't want to. Pretty much sucked. I was trying to forget that. Yeah. You know what's ironic about Galactica 1980, if you want to take a minute to talk about that? They did Battlestar Galactica as a movie. I remember seeing it in the theater, and it was just totally awesome because when the Vipers launched, it shook the movie theaters. It was when they were first starting to put in the big sound systems in a lot of places. And I remember how awesome it was, and then they took that – and just ran it as a TV show, and it had a pretty damned big budget for the time. Even though they did recycle some shots and things like that, it still, they put a lot of money into it, and they didn't want to keep putting a lot of money into it. So they came, brought it back with Galactica 1980, and apparently, even though they were trying to uh, save money, they ended up spending almost as much anyway, just doing all the outside shots and everything, so they, they didn't end up winning. And then they screwed up a really cool storyline, and and that was that. But yeah, the original Battlestar Galactica, which definitely had artificial intelligent uh, robots, uh, led by an artificial intelligent computer, mm-hmm. uh, that was 1978. But the, that's when you start seeing the, the, the transfer to from the 70s into the 80s with, with the very flashiness and all that. Uh, Buck Rogers was another one. They had artificial intelligent computers, yeah. uh, and that did make it into the 80s. Uh, Buck Rogers, I believe, was 79. Uh, Gil Gerard, the main actor who played Buck, got injured, and uh, 
they had to take a year off if I'm remembering correctly. And then they came back the next season, uh, in 81 or something like that. And, uh, they tried to turn it into Star Trek and they were on board a ship called the searcher and they took it off of earth and eh, it just wasn't as good. The dynamic wasn't quite there. And just that, that was, that was a mistake. But the the first season of Buck Rogers actually had quite a lot of good storylines, even though it didn't have quite the budget that Battlestar Galactica did. But uh, they also very much played with the idea of artificial intelligent computers uh, and robots that could think for themselves and all that. And, of course, that got bumped into the 1980s. And, uh, well, Knight Riders earlier on, that's about, I think, 84, if I remember correctly. So, again, Kit was never played off as anything other than completely self-sufficient and self-thinking. Right. Computers in the 1980s, unless maybe the top secret government programs had them couldn't even come close to doing something like that uh i think my atari computer went like hello <laughs> something like that kind of sounded like uh yeah it was pretty <laughs> kind of sounded like stephen hawking um yeah had a speaking spell and it sounded just uh, like pretty much there you go eight bit like really bad and uh definitely oh, didn't sound like a, a, a posh british man <laughs> that's for damn sure but, but you yeah, know, there was always the um, expectation and, and I think assumption uh, that artificial intelligence would reach um, a sentient state uh, and be as um, uh, indistinguishable uh, from. I mean, there's always been that trope um, where either there's the um, uh, sort of the battle between artificial intelligence and, and humans um, and as in over warfare or that humans couldn't tell um, robots from humans and that would create conflict, um, you know, or, or that they were supposed to be the assistant and somehow went awry. There's always been sort of that um, that theme of, of AI gone, um, gone dark. Um, but it's always seems the sci-fi that I can recall, it's always been <coughs> presumptive uh, that artificial intelligence would reach that state even before really we had i mean even in the 70s before computers became really a, a staple in the american home right yeah well the 80s is when you started seeing um some decent computers like uh what was it the tandy 1000 i think it was called ERS was, yeah that was the, the no, radio the shack model. computer yeah, yeah two three yeah i grew up yeah, with that. and of course apple the apple 2 2 2c all those uh started getting people used to the idea of computers in the home and all that but what they were portraying on television like again like like with Knight Rider absolutely ridiculous like the, the, nothing could even come close you can't even do that now <laughs> so yeah let, let alone the 80s but oh. as a result of that it got us all used to the concept that you can have an appliance basically your car that is completely like a human being thinking and talking for itself so of course you've got that concept in your head and there's there were even storylines where things happened to the to the car part of him and he had him in what looked like a portable television for the time. And he had the brain of the computer in there. And it was just him. He was fine. And they put him in an, a, a, a newly made car later, I, from what I recall. But uh, Max Hedrum, that was... That's a far was... cry from... That's <laughs> a far cry from how the computers were in the 1980s, too. <laughs> I remember my first computer. It was an Atari 800XL with built-in basic. Okay? Me too. <laughs> Well, if you remember, top of the line, the cousins we hung out with, Wayne, they had the yep. the four hundred, then the eight hundred, and then we both got the the next one, the eight hundred XL, and we had the disc drives yeah, and all that stuff, the the big floppies, the five and a half, five and a quarter, whatever it was, and Absolutely. oh my goodness, and these things couldn't do diddly squat. I remember. They, 
Yeah, I remember sitting for like three, four hours typing code in to get it to put a little <laughs> lightning bolt flash across the screen. Do you remember that? Yep. Oh, yep, yeah. yep, I, yep. I, I programmed on the TRS-80 um, in, what, 1980, 81, um, and was using um, get, getting past their graphic stuff, right? So it took forever to make those graphic things. So, But if you use um, character strings and peek and poke into the machine language, you could do it much more quickly, although it was kind of um, jittery. Uh, and so, yeah, I was playing with all kinds of stuff back then. So, <coughs> yeah. But that's still a far cry from, uh, you know, the Night Industries 2000. So, <laughs> Right, exactly. But, but again, they, they uh, pushed the idea that that was um, in the relatively near future or, or that was really set really in just the, the very upcoming future, like almost present, right? Just, just right in front of us. Um, somebody in chat mentioned the Judsons and I'm like, wasn't that in the, wasn't that in the 60s, 60s? But, early 60s, but they did do a 1985 to 87. They did um, another run. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but it was basically the same. The only thing they added was the, the little pet creature. I think his name was Orbity, if I remember correctly, but it, it was pretty I, much the I, same. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, yeah. They did make some new episodes, but they, they nothing really was, um, I mean, it, it felt like the, the same concepts. And as a matter of fact, I think the the voice actors were either all the same or close enough that I didn't well, notice. Bill did it, yeah. Yeah, so. He did pretty much everything. Well, uh, I know that Mel Blanc was still alive in the mid-'80s because uh, he was still doing uh, the the Warner Brothers cartoons. Yep. And, and, and his son started taking over because he passed away in um, – I don't know if Mel Blanc died in the late 80s or early 90s, but... Uh, I think it was the 90s, actually. It was, yeah. I think yeah, he, he was pretty old. I know. But uh, anyway, so Knight Rider, obviously that really... What we're talking about, of course, is social engineering and propaganda kind of pieces being laid into these things. And, of course, it got us used to the concept of the computer is your friend. The, the fully intelligent, completely conversational computer that's in your car is your friend and you can trust him because he's there to help you. And he's a nice British fellow too. Yeah, well, and he uh, even had laser beams, as I recall. Yeah. Well, yeah. he had a lot of James Bond kind of devices from time to time, and it, uh, whatever the script called for, they kind of seemed to have available for him. <laughs> Just like Batman's utility belt. It was there, only a lot more high tech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So then you still, I mean, if you put it all together, Elon Musk is trying all this, right, with the self-driving car and mm-hmm. the artificial intelligence, and um, he, he's trying to put it all together, right? So. Uh, if anybody made kit, it would be him. Oh, at least he, he would say it is. And you know it's... You, you but he'd know be electric. Because it looks so fake. <laughs> <laughs> kit never went into space, though, Baldini. So there's the difference. <laughs> not that you know. Not not that they... Not that, that's right. Not that we know of. Not that they admit <laughs> it. Right. So I, th- I think we got the point across with, uh, with, with Knigget Rider, but how about... Max Headroom. That's a that one was a little weird, and then ended up getting picked up by uh, was it Coca Cola or Pepsi? I forget which one. Ended up using Coca-Cola. him in their commercials. But there was a TV show with an actor who's uh, still alive today, as far as I know, because I've seen him do bit roles. Uh, early CGI, and of course he voice acted it. But again, they were trying to push the concept of artificial intelligence that you can completely and utterly interact with, like it was a human being, and. They made it look a little weird and off, but for the most part, uh, it was fully interactive. So they really liked this concept, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, they definitely used that Max Headroom uh, graphic, I guess you could call it, uh, an awful lot. And I mean, you, you know, it's it's one of those things they they tried to convince you that this was actually the computer talking to you, and not an actor or something portraying uh, the, the character on screen. 
At least that's kind of how I remember it, especially when they started using it in the Coca-Cola commercials and, you know, it wound up all over popular culture. Yeah, uh, sure. The TV show itself, I think, is very unmemorable for me. Uh, I don't think it lasted I, I very long. I watched it. It didn't last long, I don't think. But, I mean, it was it last not really long. what you'd expect from that type of a television show. Yeah, it was the character that, um, because he was a smarmy, wisecracking, <laughs> smartass, um, you know, he was a, if I remember right, it was a, like a, a TV, like a investigative journalist, and he got mixed up in something, and so they tried to kill him or whatever, but there was this was a digital representation of himself or something. Yeah, they like managed that. to save him yeah. in some degree like they, yeah. they transferred, yeah. transferred part of them into there something like that into a computer hmm. oh the singular where have we heard that Jeez. that sounds <laughs> kind of familiar so yeah that's kind of why we uh picked that one but uh, there's another show well there's two of them uh there's auto man and auto man was supposed to be a computer program that was able to anthropomorphize itself outside of the machine and uh, change his structure and things like that. And he had a little friend with him called Cursor. Uh, a cursor isn't something we think about much today, but on the older computers, that's the little blinky thing that you were typing as your prompt. Uh, we don't really use that. We have cursors nowadays. I don't think people think twice about them or even address them as such anymore. But uh, that one also, same concept, that uh, completely self-sufficient thinking, acting just like a human being computer program pure artificial intelligence in a way and by the way there, there's bunches of movies from the 80s too where we didn't we decided to do just tv shows since those lasted longer and it had more of an impact over time uh, i mean there's there's movies we could easily rattle off like war games you know semi-intelligent sure. computer uh, short circuit completely intelligent computer who could be your best friend like there's tons of stuff we could mention but we wanted to stick to television terminator. shows <laughs> the terminator yeah, yeah. i think te- technically um Star Trek Next Generation started in the 80s, right? 87? 87, yeah, and we're going to get to that. Yeah, yeah. Big so, impact. Yep. Uh, so data, there's your, um, there's your completely sentient uh, AI. Yep, but yep. they yeah. did at least portray him a little more realistic in the sense that he wasn't <laughs> – he didn't act like a pure human. Like he was always a work in progress kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like that was that yeah. was written into the storyline. So in that sense – plus it was in the future. It wasn't like – uh, happening in 1985, and the computers are just as good as they would have been in the 24th century, like in Star Trek kind of thing, you know? Like, Data is, of course, uh, the most powerful uh, Android ever built in, the, in their storyline, so obviously that's that's the concept. And he's still imperfect, because the, the Starship uh, computers aren't intelligent. They just do what right. you tell them. They're just, they're computers, they're fast computers with lots of memory uh, <laughs> that have excellent voice prompts. But other than that... <laughs> They're not thinking for themselves. Yeah, there you go. Um, And uh, yeah, so and there's also the BBC uh, miniseries of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, um, (laughs) which had, you know, Marvin also imperfect. Uh, He was depressed. (laughs) (laughs) He is a people personality prototype. (laughs) Yes. You can tell, can't you? (laughs) Here's another interesting crossover we could see with the whole AI thing and the AI programming in the 80s. When you look at Mr. Data from Star Trek, uh, he's your prototypical autism archetype, okay? And then if you're looking emotions at, don't uh, work like right. you said, yeah, like you said, the other the robot in Hitchhiker's Guide was depressed. So, I mean, this is kind of also normalizing mental illness and, and different things like that and neurological disorders along with the artificial intelligence and tying them both together, which kind of is a, an important concept 
uh, well, the work that I do. And if you consider it, both of those um, even superseding um, the abilities of humans. So it was something to be, again, aspired to as um, uh, idealized, right? So, for example, right. with, with Data, he was um, so uh, so intellectual that he just had trouble, um, you know, identifying with the, the emotional part. And so, uh, and, and even if you go back to the original Star Trek, so Spock... Um, kind of that same trope, right? That that he was uh, more advanced. Uh, Their um, the Vulcans were kind of more uh, evolved in that they, uh, you know, withheld their emotions. So we're supposed to, um, you know, become a completely thinking uh, and an unfeeling race. So that's a more evolved state, right? The age of reason uh, and getting rid of uh, our spirituality. And again, pu- pushing that yep. idea. Yep, and all these concepts overlap, and it, it's all part of the part and parcel of the same thing going on so yeah and you could see looking back from now and seeing what kind of condition the world is in in uh, you know social engineering terms these days compared to back then you could see how this is a the shifting of the overton window and the pushing of these concepts the early stages of these concepts and they they do this in very subtle ways so like you you don't even really pick up on it when you're watching the show but the archetype is there, and they use these archetypes to uh, kind of implant messages in your in your brain and in your subconscious, yeah, so that uh, you carry this forward later. Yeah, I find it fascinating going back and looking at older television shows of of a similar um, uh, era, and to see what they did with social engineering is to me somewhat fascinating. How they they triangulated, right? They they would. Um, use comedy on one hand right to um, uh, bring the idea in comically so that you laugh and and don't challenge it and then there's the um, narrative transport uh, where they um, make you emotionally involved with a character uh, who goes through some difficult moral circumstance of circumstances so they they put the idea in there right and then it kind of also ties into um, w- what I would say are um, you know constructed events um, in the news, <laughs> right? right? So you, you can see them all sort of tie together. So you've got actual events happening um, right tied in almost at the same time, which again leads me to believe that those are constructed and, and um, not organic uh, real events. I mean, there probably something happened, but, um, uh, you know, that you, for example, the, the first mass shooting there was at the, the um, University of Texas clock tower. Uh, and it, it all kind of occurred around, around um, other events that were happening. You had uh, similar things going on. Um, the, the fingerprints, what, what I'm saying, I guess, is that they kind of put it all together. In, um, it was right there at the um, – I was – when I look back, I'm actually surprised they didn't try to tie it to a returning Vietnam veteran because they were they were – really bringing this you know violence into the you know uh, into the american home for the first time um in the late 1960s so um i, I find it fascinating that as you go through uh when i look back at television shows and find um how they l- got these things from different angles but the same uh concept and the same they're programming a sense of um uh morals and i guess that Values, like what they want you to believe for for values and how you should approach everything, right? So um, I find this um, jumping ahead more. Uh, I've been watching more '90s shows that that do this, and they're really pushing um, certain ideas of social justice and that sort of stuff. And then you see it come to fruition a decade later. It's very it's very fascinating to me how they really um, use every angle and they they don't leave any stone unturned. Right. Oh, you're absolutely correct. Yeah, that's that's how they operate with this stuff. Uh, 
they do come at it with all these different platforms and all these different angles. That way, you know, they get you with whatever flavor you like. If you're you're somebody that prefers comedies or sitcoms or something like that, they got you from that angle. If you're somebody that likes drama shows, they got you there. If you like something like a science fiction show, hey, they got you covered there too. And, you know, they make sure to have all these ideas overlap at some point and it does kind of point to the future and you can see again how the Overton window shifts into the 90s when you do get to the 90s television programming and stuff too so it's, it just ramps up but the 80s by and large I think were the, the major decade for the foundation of using television as a grand social programming tool I mean they've always used it as that but uh, it really came into its own in the 1980s with the advent of cable television like you you had said and that kind of thing because it really uh was reaching people at an unprecedented scale than like it ever had before at that point yeah i think uh to what you said earlier wayne i think you're right in that that really was the first decade where um the the subject of television shows became the was the first decade where it became the water cooler conversation um right this it became the topic of conversation who who shot uh jr (laughs) dallas yeah (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, I guess that was late 70s, but still. Um, that was the 80s. Was it the 80s? No, that was the 80s. Yeah, yep. that was the 80s. Yep. So, so it became the topic of, of culture, right? These are the, uh, so, you know, what happened on Dallas and, um, uh, you know, Dynasty and these sort of, these sort of television shows where um, they're really laying out the landscape of um, what you should aspire to, what, what, uh, what kind of values you should have. And, and it, it became water cooler conversation. It became part of our lives and people began to care about these characters in a way that um, I, I can't really identify uh, happening prior to that. Jeremiah Harris, thank you for the $20 super chat. Uh, I guess I got that working properly. I had to change a few settings that for some reason were turned off. Thanks, YouTube. Uh, but thank you for that. If you have a question or a comment, by all means, hit his up. We'd be glad to uh, to mention it on air. By the way, let's talk about just television in general for a moment, going off of what uh, Wayne was saying. While radio was available in the home, movies, films, of course, where you had to go to them, television brought not just sound but pictures into the home. And very soon it started being 24-7 as well, especially with the advent of cable. Television stopped going off the air, so the programming could run 24-7. And what have we covered uh, with Wayne, in fact, on Crow Triple Seven Radio? We've covered the advent of 24-hour news coverage, even if it's complete malarkey. So you saw the power that television had <clears throat> on, the, uh, on the minds of the 1980s peoples uh, that all of us here are a part of that we we grew up in that era oh absolutely (laughs) and i need water because i'm losing my voice (laughs) i watched a lot of television in the 80s i'm guilty of that so did i Uh, didn't know any better you know that's the thing no and no one told me either you know i mean not that i didn't go out nobody really knew so right and nobody i knew i didn't not go out and play and stuff like that but like i absorbed tons of tons of television uh being uh uh what would I have been uh, preteen up into my early teens? Uh, lots of cartoons, you know, animated stuff, Transformers, G.I. Joe, which we'll get to in a minute. But I'm going to let my Absolutely. kitty cat Pluto in because he's crying at my door. Awesome. Well, you know that what? was an actual 
Go ahead, Baldini. I was going to say what we haven't covered yet is that this is also the the era of MTV. This is the first time uh, we got music television, right? And the video, and the, um, e- even that first year, they uh, the Buggles video killed the radio star. They <laughs> they prophesied uh, very prescient there uh, what would happen, uh, you know, in terms of what would happen to music uh, by introducing the the video music channel. Um, uh, really fascinating, fascinating stuff tying hand in hand with cable television. Um, that was one thing I was going to mention earlier with the triangulation of the of the programming from uh, drama and comedy and news. And I was, and I was going to mention um, what I didn't think to do was take a look at the music of this of the same era and tie those together because again they're they're never going to leave you, um, you, you know, uh, w- with a door open. They're they're going to cover every avenue. Uh, and so uh, I'm sure if I went back and did some correlation uh, with those uh, same episodes I was looking at, that I would find the same thing in terms of music covering. Uh, many of those uh, of those same aspects and topics oh no doubt about it mtv was huge that that was a game changer as far as uh, culture creation goes this this was it i mean this was the big popular thing i remember i was a kid i, I remember actually watching mtv come on the air when, when they was, played uh, music i think still. i was like six years old yeah when they played the buggles video and stuff yeah, I was older, so. but I watched it happen at midnight, and they, they launched it. We it my, yeah. <laughs> my cousin stayed up for it. Yeah, we were, I don't know, yeah. 16, something like that, and we, we stayed up for that. So, uh, wow, well, I'm a yeah. decade than you? Dude, <laughs> I'm old. Uh, I'm 44, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm 53, so, yeah. So, uh-huh. yeah, well, it's, it is what it is, but I mean... Yeah, you could see uh, MTV was also a major contributor in shortening attention spans. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And, but if I, if I go back and look at some of those early videos now, they're just so cringy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, are they? But it started the whole uh, the small bites kind of thing, you know, three to five minutes. Uh, yep. Some videos you would have, you know, they'd have a little bit of a storyline to them and maybe five to ten minutes, something like that. Uh, but they required a lot more money, you know, something like, say thriller uh which looked amazing but uh it was one of the biggest stars in the world ever and that's michael jackson so most videos were just kind of like uh cheesy (laughs) for the most part you know i want to bookmark something really quick in the chat here algorithm um asked the question since we all pretty much were clearly brainwashed how do we get out of the system to be as sane as we seem to be (laughs) i don't know about sane but at least least we've woken up a bit and i want to touch on that um at at the end of the show um talk to to jason a little bit we're gonna i want to just uh uh, touch base on uh the little awakening project that i've been working on and uh, give you a little update on that so um just bookmark that thanks algorithm that was awesome uh very uh very uh, salient point there and we'll, we'll get to that because we, we all have been um you know brainwashed uh, to a degree they programmed all of us N- none of us um uh, are immune from it uh, even now i find that um if i watch tv which is not very often um my wife and i will just we'll look at each other in awe when they can play a commercial or something and they get you to, to tear up at something and they're like we're like, how do they? How do they do that? Like, we know exactly what's happening. We know what's going on. Um, and, and like, or we watch a movie we've seen a dozen times, and then right at that moment, they they play the music cue, and you, you start sniffling up, and we're like, how do? How does this happen? We know exactly what's going on, and it still works. Like, it's it's, <laughs> fun, it's phenomenal the the amount of power that they have by using multimedia, music cues, um, and setting the scenario. Man, they. And we just look at each other and go, there's got to be more to it. There, there is some kind of something, there, there's something in the wave, man, that it is, it's, it goes beyond because 
the power that it has to to emotionally engage you is so frightening. I mean, it, it, it is overwhelming that they can get you uh, to to cry on cue, laugh on cue. Um, it is it is pretty phenomenal. And um, and again, I think the, like again, none of us are immune from it. Uh, and even but, but those of us who who have taken the red pill or, or whatever, we look around and um, see the people who haven't, and it is. Uh, to me, scary. I mean, we, we sometimes joke how it's like being a the only sober person in a bar, right? You look around like, oh my gosh, what? This is horrible. <laughs> and you know what that means if you're the only sober person in the bar, right? You're the designated driver. Yep. I don't want to be the designated driver. Yeah. <laughs> Designated but, drinker, right? But no, yeah. I, I lost my car keys, man. I'm we're gonna we're gonna walk home. No, but it it is, um, yeah, it, it is uh, mind-boggling uh, to look out and see people who um, get you know are literally like they'll they'll tell me how how scared they are of climate change. They're terrified of it, and I just it's like really like really it it. it it, it's staggering to me. It really, um, I, I really struggle sometimes, I, and, I, and I forget um, that you know, uh, it just those things don't affect me anymore. And uh, but to see people who are really fully affected by it, and I can watch it on Facebook as the, my timeline scrolls by. When they um, throw something out in the news, I can, I know that five or six people are gonna, they're gonna regurgitate it immediately, like pounding their chest how how great they are uh, that that they have adopted whatever they've been told to, to regurgitate and, and parrot. And it, it's just like, oh man. <laughs> oh, man. The, one that, the one that I love today, if you're looking around on Facebook and everything else, is the shock and awe that, that uh, Trump's impeachment uh, just completely went away now. He was acquitted today. Yeah. So, <laughs> Oh, it was a whole lot of. I've been telling people from the get go. Like, oh, that that's so yesterday's news. Come of this. Yeah. It's just a big long distraction, and it's had people at it for months, and now they're they're acting all shocked and appalled that <laughs> this guy got acquitted. And it's like you know, this is nothing. It's political theater. Don't pay attention to it. Right. Nothing's going to happen. I call so it. It's, I find it funny. Yeah, I, I call it theater of the macabre, right? It's it's like uh, WWE wrestling, um, but in suits and ties instead of those those hideous tights, right? Yeah, I, I would I think it would be more entertaining to see a no holes bar grudge match uh, on the floor of the Senate building. That that'd be interesting, uh, but but it really has about as much um, effect. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's about as serious because it, it really is just theater. They're just they're gaslighting all of us, right? It is just a, it's a joke. Um, but I mean, yeah. So I mean, here we have in the, in the 1980s. If we're going to throw politics in there, the the the, uh, the blue dress, right? They throw uh, throw that in there, and, and uh, depends on what your definition of is is. Uh, <laughs> So, so here we have again in the 1980s the um, the pushing of the idea that um, you know oral sex is is not sex, um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and I want I want to say that was the 90s. Though. Was it the 90s? Was it? Yeah, I, I guess I am getting. Yeah, old. Clinton was in the 90s. That was okay, the 90s. The yeah. 90s. Yeah, yeah, it was the 90s. You, you so, had Bush Senior was uh, you know Reagan's follow-up president there. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So, so the director of the CIA, um, and yep. then uh, they push out the idea that that he's struggling with quote the wimp factor, like he like like that he was worried that people thought he was a wimp. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, he because was the, Reagan was so tough, and you know George Rumbo. Bush, you know this guy. <laughs> yeah. 
mm-hmm. this guy who you know has has the intelligence agencies and all uh you know at his beck and call yeah yeah, yeah. he's he's harmless he's a, yeah totally he's, harmless yeah he's a he's a care bear <clears throat> so yeah i didn't mean to derail this guys i just <laughs> we got off on mtv there for a minute and i went <laughs> well it's an it's television and it, wayne and i funnily funny enough didn't think to put that in there uh, on the notes that i've got here but uh very important point and very influential yeah. And, you know, I have never figured out, and maybe we can talk about this for a moment, uh, why did MTV just die out in the sense that it no longer was music television? Like, they just stopped giving a hoot about playing music videos. <laughs> Reality TV, road rules. Well, yeah. well, I know, but why Why did they do that? Like, that, that shouldn't have been MTV's thing. If anything, they should have had alternative channels do it. You know, like, they, they and when they did start doing that, of course, MTV too, and, and I think they had others as well. But why did they give up what they were all about to the point that they weren't even really showing music anymore? I have a theory about that, and here's here's what I think it is. They started with the music, okay? And once you got on board with the whole program of, uh, you know, we're, we're watching music television, music videos, blah, 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 this and that. Well, then it was time to shift up the programming. So what they did is they started pushing this whole reality TV concept and that's that's basically where the reality tv concept was born was mtv and they started rolling this out massively and this gets people more involved in the show and actually thinking hey you know what i could be a television star too Mm -hmm. and that that's the whole thing and and still that that uh frame of mind is still involved with people with this whole reality TV push. People believe these reality television shows, that these are actual people from day-to-day life that, uh, you know, applied for this show or whatever and went on. And it may be true to one degree or another, but anybody who's ever been, uh, you know, in a producer's chair or something on one of those shows will tell you they they kind of stir the pot to kind of get... Oh, they do more than that. Nowadays, they're scripted. Yeah, a right. few things are less real than, than reality. Than reality television. Now, there may have been some reality to it back in the early days, maybe, and I don't even know this, uh, with, the, with the real world and all that, which was one of the earliest ones. But it, I can tell you uh, that, that they're scripted now for the most part. Yeah. Now, like There might be some interactions that aren't scripted line for line, but the general notion is, yes, they, they do things. They, things are controlled in that environment very much so. And, uh, you know, we could also look at it, and, and I know why they did it. I mean, it was it was about money. Uh, it was it, it was about the social programming. But if you can even think about it this way, this was the precursor to the YouTube kind of thing. People were convinced that they could become stars without actually being celebrities in the first place. That's exactly where I was headed, Jason. That's ah, exactly. Absolutely. Because, yep, and, and uh, Wayne kicked it off, right, is the, this idea that, that you're going to get – your 15 minutes of fame and so and uh you know when you said so you were saying about scripting i was going to say that's that's what i call it it's it's not reality tv it's simply unscripted tv Um, (laughs) they they know they're gonna do there's just you know it's just all ad lib it's extemporaneous um but it's but it's simply just unscripted and that just saves a lot of money um you know it takes a little bit more time in editing uh but uh beyond that um they don't have to write a script they don't have to hire writers Um, they just get people who are willing to be uh, you know a spaz but it's certainly not people (laughs) Right, but but what you get ultimately is this idea that somehow you're going to get your 15 minutes of fame if you sell yourself out, and so you get people on um, YouTube who will do the most stupid um, and self-harming things. Right, the guys who hit themselves in the nuts with a baseball bat. Oh my um, balls! Just, 
Yeah, just to get clicks, right? <laughs> people who like the people have literally gotten killed. Some gal shot her boyfriend, um, you know, in the chest uh, while he's, you know, holding a piece of wood or something in a block it because they were they were going to get views, right? It, it's just it's people are easily um, easily influenced, and that's what social programming is about. But um, you guys hit it on the head. Uh, for, from from my perspective, that is what um, uh, what uh, reality television was: is to give you an idea um, that you that you could somehow um, become famous because you sure weren't going to get rich, right? And, and this you've got to keep this free range slave thing going on, right? If you if you get discouraged and 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 you won't turn the the rabbit or the gerbil wheel anymore, um, then you're going to get disgruntled and you're going to start just going, hey. How can we fix this? Well, well, they don't want that, right? You need to you need to keep chasing um, that carrot, and so it's just one more carrot that they stick out in front of you is that y you might get your lucky break, right? So, so they got they got to keep um, uh, you running that gerbil wheel. They they got to keep that keep you distracted for five more minutes so you don't sit there and contemplate. The last thing they can have you do is to sit there and stare at the stars and contemplate the meaning of your life. Right, Even so though the meaning of life came out in the 1980s. Right. <laughs> Last Monty yeah. Python film. Yep. But here's the thing. They took this, the most popular uh, platform out there that they had for the entire decade, MTV. They took this and they used this to push this social narrative on people, the reality TV thing. They switched it up. See, that's the thing, because, you know, they were switching out the decades. And you could see how the social programming just follows these certain scripts and, you know, these certain time frames. And it shifts the Overton window over. So they already had your attention. It was the most popular platform. So they had to shift the mass consciousness towards this whole reality TV concept and, and get that idea out there. So that's what they used. They, they built up the platform that became the most popular thing. And they used it to, to the extreme. And uh, I, I don't know if MTV is even still popular today. I haven't watched it in, oh, man, years. Uh, like many, many, many years now. I wouldn't even know. I mean... Literally, but um, yeah. So uh, in terms, so so I, I wasn't in your conversation previously. You covered AI. Did you cover um, uh, the alien, the, the alien trope, and the alien invasion or aliens among us trope in the nineteen eighties? No, was, I thought we'd be plowing through these more. Uh, we even yeah, have one more for the artificial intelligence one, which we can rattle off quick here since the show's already half over. Uh, and that's a, a show called Small Wonder, and I didn't oh, even remember this one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, hello to D Live. I don't want to forget about you guys. They're saying thank you for the gravy. You are quite welcome. Have some extra helpings because we're going to keep on going here. Yeah. So Wayne, yeah, so uh, Small Wonder was one show. I didn't really remember. I, I had to look it up again. But go ahead and tell us about that one, and we'll we'll move on to the next point. Uh, basically, this was uh, like a, a sitcom, and it was about, uh, I, I guess he was like a robotics engineer or something, the father in the show. So he, he builds uh, a robot, an android, that's designed as a little girl, and he tries to pass her off as his adopted daughter. And, uh, you know, this th this quit. little girl. Yeah. I'm sorry, what was that? I said she glitched all the time, and that's why it was a sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But uh, yeah, it's it portrayed this uh, this little girl as being like self-sufficient, artificial intelligence, had all kinds of superhuman abilities and stuff like that, and was really kind of playing up the whole AI concept. Like this, this could be a really great thing. So you know, and I, I don't remember how many years it didn't go on for a long time. It was only like three seasons or something. I think the show lasted, if I remember correct. Nineteen, uh, yeah. 
So 85 to 89, yeah. Yeah, so like four years. Pretty much the same concept that was in the movie AI. Supposed to be Kubrick's last film he was working on uh, that Steven Spielberg, from what I understand, completely jacked over and put out a boring piece of crap compared to what Kubrick was going to do. But uh, because seriously, who would want a permanently young little boy? Who would actually want that? Herberts. Mm. Uh, that's uh, we don't need to go any further there because I, I actually want to keep my channel. But uh, I, I think yeah, the point her. is made well enough, and everyone else can yes. infer what they need to we'll from just, there. Go over we'll just leave it sit with with that. With yeah. That term. So um, let's get to the alien one since there's more about that. We can go back to the uh, some of the other points. Of course, Star Trek: The Next Generation brought Star Trek back to television. Uh, after the 1960s, uh, other than the cartoon in the early 70s. But Star Trek Next Generation brought really gave Star Trek this huge boost that lasted all the way up into the 2000s till it just kind of pittered out. But uh, in 1987, we had the new Captain Picard and the new Enterprise, and that show was quite strong and got the whole space and aliens concept right back front and center for a lot of people. Make it so, number one. Yeah, and I've actually been rewatching those to kind of see what kind of programming is in them, and just to kind of remember my childhood because that was those were of course better times. But Star Trek: The Next Generation, uh, you know, compared to other than other than the flash and bang of today, these these stories are so much better than any of the crap being pumped out these days. Uh, stories like, are better written, but it does seem a little schlocky to me. Like oh, it is. Corn. It is, but I'm still enjoying them, and the, and the effects even aren't that bad. Now, when they did early CGI on occasion, most of the stuff was practical. The occasional early CGI they did looked a little wonky, but like the ships all look great, the planets all look great, so it's not even like it's hard to watch. It's it's fine, you know. They did makeup and, and a lot of stuff, and all the normal effects, like any of the phasers and all that crap, everything looks fine. It's not. It doesn't look like anything that you'd be like, "Ew, I can't watch that." It's it's not. <laughs> It's not, it's not as bad as Doctor, Doctor Who. But, Doctor Who never had a budget. And even yeah. when they started giving it a budget, it still was a little wonky. Yeah. <laughs> now it's got a budget and it's complete garbage, but we don't even need to go there. Um, so Alien and Aliens in Outer Space, front and center. But there are a couple of other shows that really drove that point home. Uh, Alien Nation, based off the movie. Starman, also based off a movie. Uh, Quantum Leap. Great show, great writing on that show. Very interesting, but there was still a lot of a lot of concepts in there about uh, other things going on. Uh, a big one, V. Yeah, I v can't. For I wasn't going to let you forget that one. Nope. That, that's, uh, v was probably one of the one of the best examples of the decade of and uh, again the, uh, a really good story, program. a really good story, like yeah. good writing, very good writing. Uh, on, on the sitcom side of things, of course, we had Alf, which ran for quite a few years. Yep. Uh, great show, yeah. very funny, loved it as a kid. And uh, right at the end of the 80s, very beginning of the 90s, they did a TV show that was a continuation of the 1950s War of the Worlds. And uh, the first season was all right. Second season got really, really wonk- wonky. Uh, but I remember, Wayne, you and I both watched it back then. That was that was our, yeah. our childhood of us hanging out, Star Trek Next Generation. And we went to some conventions and everything. Uh, oh, yeah, at the Masonic Temple, no less. Yeah, you remember that? Remember. Yeah, at the Masonic Temple. <laughs> Oh, the things we would notice nowadays. <laughs> yes. Uh, Kevin, thank you for the $7.77 uh, uh, super chat. And he says, on behalf of the D-Live Bears, thanks, Crow, Jason Rose, crushing. Thank you. Very, very appreciated. 
But uh, all right, gentlemen, go ahead and tear that one apart. Uh, we had quite a few examples there. Also uh, out of this world. So um, from, from my perspective, the, the two primary themes that, that you've got in uh, uh, in the alien thing is uh, you can, in fact, go all the way back to um, uh, my favorite Martian for this trope, right, which is the, the alien stuck on Earth uh, who tries to pretend to be human. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and they're hi somehow hiding them. So uh, out of this world was one that ran in the in the 1980s um, with a girl who's uh, finds out that she's half human, half um, star person or whatever. Uh, so you've got you've kind of so I guess the three one the th the three primary themes is you've got the future, the thing set in the future, humans in the future, like Star Trek. Um, you've got the alien that comes to Earth uh, who is somehow stuck here or, or whatever, um, trying to pass themselves off as human. Uh, and then you've got uh, like V, which is the, the human or the alien invasion. Um, and um, V has so many of the primary tropes from, um, you know, the reptilians passing themselves off as uh, as humans with their covering um, that uh, getting into uh, agreement with the government. Government, so you have uh, government um, collusion there. Um, people who uh, don't, um, who, who aren't convinced, are conspiracy theorists. I mean, they they really run uh, a lot of the major major themes there. So the, those are the three primary to me. That the three primary things uh, that I see on the alien thing, where they, they're getting those ideas across uh, of humans in the future, um, aliens that are somehow stuck here and passing themselves off as human, uh, or the uh, the alien invasion. <coughs> Wayne? Yeah, definitely. You could see how all those different factors uh, tie into it. And there were there were a ton of really good uh, shows that, that kind of pushed this whole idea in the 80s, V being key among them. I remember that. That, that started as a miniseries, as I as Yeah, I until recall. they did it as a normal series. And I, I remember... I remember just watching this miniseries in awe. I think it later became like a full-fledged series, but I don't it think did. it lasted long yeah. after that. Now, well, yeah. they, they finished the story out. They defeated yeah. them in the end. Yeah, but I mean, you could see how you move along from that and then on up uh, in the late 80s to Alien Nation, where the aliens lived on Earth and interacted with the humans, and then you have the whole uh, narrative of... Uh, like the, the whole racism type angle going on between the humans and the aliens and all of that like kind of stuff. Snap. Yeah, that's another yep. take on our uh, District 7. Um, Dist was District 9? District 9, yeah. District 9, yeah, that was a terrific movie, um, but really, really covered those themes really well. Yeah, not, so they, they used the alien theme for a lot of different things, a lot of different angles for social programming, not just the invasion from space motif. They they use it in different ways like that, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, if I watch any of these shows, they, they kind of all run the gamut in terms of uh, social programming engineering, uh, but they're using the, the primary tropes to, to get you there, um, and all of them using um, a sense of fantasy. Um, that uh, you want to include yourself again through this narrative transportation uh, that you want to include yourself in the storyline that you you uh, project yourself uh, into the hero's journey um, although I think that to me that's some of the, the differences between the the good shows that, that last uh, and those that don't is that the ones that are good uh, do keep a, a hero's journey arc 
going um, uh, over time uh, rather than just a show to show kind of thing. You see this in um, Star Trek, for example, uh, that there's a, a bigger story arc that kind of goes along rather than the uh, simply episodic, um, you know, type uh, type situation with um, like somebody mentioned Third Rock from the Sun or stuff like that is always um, just episode by episode. In fact, they'll often back themselves into a corner, as does Doctor Who, where you mess with the canon. Oh, right. So they um, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. Um, but but using this idea of getting people to interject themselves into the storyline and using fantasy. Uh, and again, for many people, um, television is this powerful tool that um, uh, it is more real to them than their daily lives. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as well is um, uh, what we didn't mention in terms of some of the big uh, areas is um, uh, the. Um, Daytime soap operas, which are, again are dying now, but that was big in the, in the 1980s. With oh the, goodness, yes. Lord, yeah. oh my gosh, that like so many people, that was bigger than yep. Princess Diana, right? Uh, wedding, there was almost nothing bigger, and that went on for a year, year and a half of the stupid uh, Luke and Laura wedding, right? Um, so uh, these people became so um, tied up and and uh, and really invested. Uh, in these characters, uh, and again, in a way that I hadn't seen prior to that, and and uh, to some degree, not since um, it, to that degree um, that it re really in the 1980s, um, as you said, when it really took on a life of its own, uh, where it really became entrenched in in the American. Um, I, again, I don't I, I don't know so much about um, European or, or other places in the world. I mean, having I've traveled there, but but in terms of their culture, uh, I don't know um, how in uh, steeped and entrenched that became, but. But certainly, the saturation level here in the in uh, the America, um, in America and Canada, North America, was uh, amazing. Uh, that it really became uh, a primary topic of culture and conversation. Right, and it, it got to uh, the point where the television was so entrenched in people's minds that it crossed over into other different genres too, like music. Uh, for instance, uh, like you were just saying, with the soap operas, Rick Springfield starred in one of the soap operas mm -hmm. at one point and had this huge musical career that, that went along with it. Yep. So, I mean, it's you see where a lot of these shows actually, when you move forward through time a little bit, you see how people who got their starts on some of these lesser-known shows and stuff like that eventually wound up becoming just huge, like, superstars around the world in different genres like music and, um, you know, movie stars and things like that. Like George Clooney got his start in a show called The Facts of Life in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Like he, he was a, a recurring character on there for a while and hadn't really done much before that. And this was kind of the one of the, the platforms that he had jumped up from and became a huge star. And now he travels the world and, you know, has say in different uh, different things with uh, different governments of the world and stuff like that. Like, it just astounds me that uh, a Hollywood actor has this kind of clout in places. But, you know, it's that's the way that it is. Got two more Super Chats. Uh, Eric DeLion for $5 says, Shout out to Wayne. Appreciate your calm voice, demeanor, and insight, my friend. Stay strong. Thank you so much. And $10 from Case Dismissed Guaranteed says, Thanks, guys, and thank you. Really appreciate both of those guys. You guys are awesome. So why don't we uh, let's see where are we at? Okay, we got some time left. Let's talk about transgenderism, something that's a, a huge topic today. That's uh, kind of out of control, really. But we had a lot of uh, weird stuff going on. Uh, there seems to be a thing with Hollywood going back quite a few decades of getting 
men into dresses. Uh, there's definitely movies around this, like uh, Tootsie is a good example. But uh, Bosom <laughs> Buddies is, is a great example that's completely wrapped around this entire concept the entire time of men dressing up and having to act like women. That and is Tom the premise of the yep. show. Yep. Yeah, yeah, lifted directly from Tom. the Bohemian Grove. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll get you. Yeah. And of yeah, course, I we mean, have you, uh, you Tom Hanks see. going on to become a mega, mega, mega star. I don't think his uh, partner on that show got very far, but uh, <laughs> uh, he, he started some other stuff too. He had a pretty good acting career as well. Peter Scolari. Uh, he, he went on and, and did other shows, uh, notably in in the 1980s. He also uh, starred on Newhart, uh, the second iteration of uh, Bob Newhart's show. Ah. So this. I remember that show too. That show was a kind of trippy and, and and neat in a lot of ways too. But uh, it, it basically, he was an innkeeper in Vermont. I think is is what the story was. Him and his wife they ran an inn in Vermont, and they had all kinds of weird characters and stuff showed up there all the time. But Peter Scolari was in that one too. So you know, it was it was an interesting show. As I recall, the the only thing I really recall about the show, I watched it for a long time, is uh, the ending of the show. Uh, and it was like a, one of those cliffhanger endings. And the the, the very end of the Newhart show was uh, he wakes up and he looks over in bed and it's his original wife from his original Bob Newhart show there. And he said, oh, honey, I had the weirdest dream. And that was, and that oh, was kind of great. a cultural classic thing. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I remember that very vividly because I watched that because I watched that show a lot because uh, they, they had some weird characters like uh, – uh, they had a couple guys that came around. They, it was like their handyman or something that they recall. He'd come in and he'd say, Hi, I'm Larry, and this is my brother Daryl, and this is my other brother Daryl. And he had two brothers named Daryl. Yeah, and it that. was just kind of this whole take. Yeah, it was just, it was a funny show. It was a good show. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of put these, these different weird archetypes in the air with that kind of stuff. Like that was kind of a shot at uh, anybody who lives in, you know, the country or as as crow might refer to it as, as pagans it was kind of a shot at <laughs> pagans that larry and his brother daryl and his other brother daryl think so that's that's kind of uh you know one of those things where if you weren't really uh, well steeped in this kind of knowledge it's very subtle and you wouldn't pick up on it just watching the show like that but i mean you know all these things are are kind of just thrown in there and it is it's all social programming and uh you know people don't always see it because it is very subtle at times with stuff like that. But anyway, enough with that tangent. What were we talking about? The one that wasn't <laughs> wasn't quite so subtle, and I guess we're going back to the 70s for this, and, and it's not exactly transgender, but it was certainly the first um, uh, gay character that I remember or, or treatment of it on television was Three's Company. Um where he had it was a all girls apartment and so to get to to be able to live there he had to convince the um landlords mr and mrs roper that he was gay right uh, and so he had to pretend to be gay although he was really a hound uh, <laughs> but that was the first treatment of that um on television and it was uh, fairly scandalous um at the time in the in the 70s uh so you know again the first real open treatment of that and and uh the opening of the overton window for certain uh, that they really started dealing um, with these themes on television uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, and that was uh, John Ritter, and he had a huge career after that too. Suzanne so Summers. It's, oh yeah. Yep, Suzanne Summers. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Her too. And, uh, you know, it, it was. I mean, this was kind of a shifting of the Overton window towards more of these ideas. Because if you look at a show like that now, people would be like, okay, what's the big deal? The guy lives in an apartment with two girls. Like, right. <laughs> it, it's one of those things. It was like a cultural thing at the time. I mean, this was really groundbreaking. And, and right. people don't don't realize that now because you look and you think, okay, well, you know, what's up with that? And sure. same Funny. thing with Bosom just, Buddies. It was yeah. the whole concept behind that is they were living in a building that was only for women. And right. like, do ending. we really have that type, type of a thing this yeah, day but, and age? We, and the we funny really thing don't. Is- yeah, Three's Company was supposedly set in, in Los Angeles, right? So uh, we have one of the most hedonistic cities next to San Francisco, um, and, and yet their their lease, you know, was only, uh, you know, it was scandalous for a man to live with two women. They wouldn't let him do it. And, uh, again, to show you how much culture has changed just over this short period of time is um, – uh, pretty remarkable. I mean, it certainly happened within my lifetime, and I got to see it. But I think anyone uh, under thirty now would would not, um, uh, you know, they'd be like, "What?" <laughs> they they just they wouldn't understand the the difference in, in values um, that people had, and what and the mores is is changed very much. And um, you, you know, again, I think part of why we're taking on this um, topic is that television was an enormous part uh, of this programming. Uh, television, certainly movies and, and other things, but television was a daily um, I- you know, uh, interjection into the American uh, household, and people began spending 40-plus hours a week watching television. And you had morning television, afternoon television, and evening television, and it was all different kinds of programming, too. Yep, they did. Right. Se- they did separate it, and uh, they had certain uh, rules about what could be on at certain times. You couldn't. You couldn't uh, take certain themes until you got into the prime time or or uh, post uh, seven p.m. Pacific time. Uh, you know, and eight p.m. Central. You know, <laughs> you remember, remember they separated up like that. Uh, seven p.m. Mountain time. Uh, so they did it at different times, but yeah, you couldn't touch certain themes um, without those, and they had to have a certain amount of news. So news would come on, uh, you know, between the five and six o'clock hour. And then you had the, the evening news come on afterwards, and then you had the the late show, Johnny Carson, or or the the, the talk shows. And now any of it's available at any time, um, really, with a you know with a DVR and um, uh, YouTube or or on demand programming. All that stuff is a, is a thing of the past. I mean, um, you know, we used to watch television where you had to schedule your bathroom breaks and run to the bathroom because you know you couldn't talk <laughs> or anything and people literally scheduled their lives around these television shows right they look we we're talking about masks previously um, that they would they would set their watch by it um and uh, nothing would interrupt them uh, for that so uh, really uh, an enormous change uh in the the values and the consciousness uh of uh, western society uh, based primarily on television i saw a bunch of people mentioning mash mash uh kind of had two iterations 70s MASH, which is the one I, I think of as MASH, was one program. And then the dark, serious MASH's ending, uh, Alan Alda took over the program and started making it this dark drama. Uh, that's 80s MASH, early 80s MASH when it ended. So the, very different show, yeah. Yeah, very, very different. It wasn't, certainly wasn't funny. I mean, it actually discussed the reality of what the Korean War was <laughs> and the, the hell that was happening to these people and all that. It, it was gone. So, yeah, you had Klinger dressing as a woman and all that kind of thing. But, man, yep. the, talking about the 80s version of MASH, totally different show. And why they let him do it, I don't know. I mean, I guess they just wanted to get rid of it at that point. But uh, I figured we'll throw it on the table since I saw multiple I think, folks mentioning it. I think it, 
I think it, it's it's less about that. I think it's the same thing that we could discuss with um, many of these franchises, the MCU or the Star Wars franchises. We say, well, they, they don't care about it. But I, I don't think that's true. I think they what they don't care about is the money. What they do care about is the social engineering. So once they uh, develop and, and have a, a brand to leverage and they get a certain amount of mind share, uh, then they can break out the things that they, they want to push on you. And they're going to get a certain number of people just by virtue of having that leverage because um, they already have buy-in, right? So even if the people reject um, that particular programming, they're at least going to watch it, and they at least have um, butts in seats, right? So, so with that later iteration of Mash, or whether it's the, um, you know, the the trashing of the MCU or Star Wars franchises, they already have a, a brand leverage that they can go off of and um, inject those those themes into people and use that social engineering and programming on people. I don't, I don't think it's less that they care. It's not even about the money, right? They can print all they want. I, I don't think. Um, you know, money is it's a big Ponzi scheme as long as it keeps moving uh, and doesn't stop. Right? That's all they need. But um, right. but but the programming is, is the ultimate uh, is to me the key um, to what's happening in all of this. Right. And the ironic thing is uh, all those properties you just named, including MASH, are now Disney properties. So it could be MASH rightly is a Disney property. Like, MASH is a Disney property. Yeah. So it could be rightly said that Klinger is a Disney princess. Yeah. <laughs> well, just like Dr. Frankenfurter. That's right. Now a, a mouse trap, or now it's a mouse with a human trap. You know, you you, you brought up Star Wars. It's pretty much apparent at this point, despite the way they try and paint the picture, that they have done serious damage to that property now. And I keep wondering, is it really to the point where the money just doesn't matter at all? I mean, literally not at all. Is there no one that the Disney Corporation has to answer to? Like, is, is there not a board of directors? I really got to look into this because it's getting to the point that I'm, I'm damned curious. They have done serious damage. You know, uh, the last movie, uh, Fall of Skywalker, was just nowhere near what it should have been uh, as, as a moneymaker. I mean, they probably just broke even because they had to pay so much for the marketing and the reshoots and all that crap. But... I gotta wonder where are they gonna go with this. I mean, they they've just they've allowed because it's not even that that they injected so much garbage into the films. They let the filmmakers and the people at Lucasfilm shoot their mouths off, insulting fans, like the dumbest thing you could possibly do. That's like if I sold drills and then I contact every single uh, carpenter and said, "Hey, you're a freaking idiot. I hope you rot in hell because you're stupid." Why would you do that? You know. I I I think that that's it, Jason. I think that money doesn't matter. I think you you nailed it. Is that it? It really is about uh, more about the programming and and the social engineering and to get these themes out there. Uh, money doesn't matter. The, um, the board of directors they're they're all part of the same group. They they all hang out you know naked in Bohemian Grove. Um, they, they, they from my perspective the uh, the push has become uh, a mad dash for the finish, and and that's what. If there's anything that I find concerning and looking around, it, it is that they have they are beginning to drop the pretense uh, of um, of hiding it anymore, uh, and and just it's it's a mad uh, sprint to the end, and uh, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting, uh, that's for sure. But but yeah, when it comes to money, I think that um, I see it go out. They they have a high budget. They make a, a big budget movie uh, with no expectation of return. Well, that's what I keep bringing up. I mean, I know that this is all about social engineering. Don't, don't, don't ever think that I don't know that. I mean, I'm the one who keeps pushing it, as, as a matter of fact, as often as not. But anyway, we've only got half an hour left. Let's hit on our last couple points here. Uh, 
We were starting to uh, mention early on about normal families were still being portrayed in the 1980s, and we had a couple of massive shows, uh, Family Ties, The Cosby Show, Different Strokes, uh, a few others weren't quite as big as those, but you still saw some pretty normal things going on there. Who's the Boss, Webster, Silver Spoons, uh, we mentioned Mr. Belvedere before. Most of those you saw a fairly normal family situation, the kind of thing you wouldn't see now. Yeah, although you, you did see a fair number of single-parent um, homes or... Yeah. Uh, it was starting to. Yeah, non-traditional type families. Um, it's really the first iterations that, that I can recall, um, other than like the courtship of Eddie's father and a few um, very strange things um, uh, uh, set that way. But, but yeah, it's um, uh, mostly kind of semi-normal but dysfunctional, like, um, like we mentioned, married with children up front, um, sort of a dysfunctional family or um, somewhat non-traditional um, or you know, alternative uh, family. Uh, they begin to introduce these ideas more and more. That's the thing. They were trying to shift from what we could, would consider the, your your normal, typical family unit to something more non-traditional. And, like, towards the end of the decade, you had shows like My Two Dads. I don't know if you guys remember that one or not. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you have stuff like that. And then Full House, where it's, it's you know, all the single guys raising the kids um, yep. and, and things like that. I mean, so you could see. Now it shifts like what what is the norm and like other shows like uh, I'm remembering Alice the the one where she yep. was the waitress at the restaurant she was a single mom and then uh, one day at a time she was a single mom that yep. kind of stuff so I mean they were portraying that throughout the course of the decade but uh, you could see how it gradually progressed where they were they were still representing what we would consider like you know your typical family unit but then they were uh, introducing these other family unit types and making them more of a normalized thing. So you could see how this progresses through the course of the decade, too. And another another major uh, theme, which is uh, kind of, uh, it's it's not, um, well, it's, it's a little bit hidden, I think, or it's a little bit more subtle, is that um, this is really the, the last decade um, that you see, well, I'd say maybe even the 70s was the last decade that you see any of the major television characters living in a rural setting. Um, all of them have now shifted into major into cities. Um, yeah. So like Waltons would have been one of the last ones that you see in a rural setting. Um, I can recall when we were talking about this um, previously, Jason, with you and Crow, is I noticed that uh, even like Green Anchors was one, um, uh, the top ranked show for eight or nine years. And while it was still at its top, they canceled it just they right at the beginning of the 1970s when we were looking at decades right so um they really pushed um everybody out of rural settings and into the city and now there really is almost no um you know primary character that's living in a rural setting other than the idea that they hate it and uh it's a it's hell right so um Schitt's creek or whatever right <laughs> Um, so the idea that um, the the mindset is that anybody, everyone who's anyone lives in a city that you don't count uh, if you live in a rural setting. And, and I think this, um, to me, speaks to uh, the long term idea, of, uh, Agenda 21 and, and Agenda 2030 is getting people uh, entirely into smart cities. Well, Little House on the Prairie is the only one that really kind of ran its course uh, from the 70s into the 80s. And they, they let that one go on. Uh, I remember that being, uh, God, on for as long as I can remember my childhood. And then, of course, um, Michael Landon went on to do uh, Stairway to Heaven, I think, was the next one he did. The one where he was an angel. Stairway to Heaven. 
Hmm? Yeah. Highway to Heaven. Highway. Stairway to Heaven. That's, That's Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Show you, shows you what's okay, on my uh, mind. You know. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, Baldini mentioned the Aussie song before. Yeah, I know. Solutions. Solutions. <laughs> you know. Yeah, why not? You know, you can see how these things all cross over anyway. So It's a crazy train, man. What do I- <laughs> it is, totally. I'm going off the rails. Uh, so <laughs> let's talk about something else that was really big in the 80s that definitely – when the gear shifted into the 90s, just poo, gone. And that's hyper-materialism. The whole concept of the 80s is one great big freaking party. Uh, two great shows to point that out would be Miami Vice and, and maybe even Magnum P.I. Uh, yep. You know, yeah. the money to, to have cool toys and do cool things on cool adventures. Uh, even though Miami Vice was a little more gritty, uh, still, you know, they, Crockett and Tubbs are going they on, on, on cop, cop yeah. adventures, you know. Boy, didn't that hit the brakes at the '90s, man? You get uh, never Nirvana's Nevermind, um, and suddenly everything sucks. Right? So That's what I always say, and I, that was '91's the year I graduated high school. And man, I can remember even like uh, girls wanting to look really pretty and do themselves up at, right at the end of my high school age and getting right out of high school, and then all of a sudden the grunge thing hit big time, and everyone's cutting their hair off and dressing androgynous and getting a million earrings. I'm just like. I remember looking around at a Denny's one night. I was with my friend Matt and maybe one or two other people. I said, what happened? Like a year or two ago, girls went out of their way to look hot. You know, I remember thinking that. And looking back now in my mid-40s, it's like I can see it. I can – in my own memory, the changing of the decades is so freaking obvious. It's like, nope, different gear, click. And there it was. Grunge came in, uh, butt rock, hair metal, whatever the hell you want to call it. <laughs> gone just wiped out of existence the party's over baby but yeah. uh, let's take a moment to talk about hypermaterialism and how that was really pushed in the 80s and the party did not end until 1990 hit yeah that's that's true i mean it, it really was um the uh, the age of, of big money and um cocaine and party life and, the yuppie uh, which you never hear about yeah. anymore yeah, the yuppie, uh, and you know the turned up collars and uh, bright pastel colors. Yeah, uh, everybody, you know, it, it was a, a big party going on, and um, it did that. The brakes really hit uh, when we got to the end of it and came into the '90s. So that's, um, yeah, that that certainly is uh, to me uh, reeks of uh, again social engineering. It's, um, you know, one of the things I noted, Jason, in going back and listening to the decades um, series that you and Crow did, uh, really was that it is um, clearly n- non-organic, right? That um, the, the simply having the numbers attached to them is a completely artificial thing. In other words, uh, society should, of its own, um, go through normal phases of, of um, you know, uh, change and growth. And uh, but what we see here is that it's intrinsically linked to these uh, to these numbers, and that um, as soon as you get to the end of a decade. Uh, the mindset changes um, because it's being programmed that way, not because it happens organically and of its own. Um, I think that's a, a very clear indication. If you need uh, any further guidepost to tell you that uh, we live in an artificially uh, constructed world where, um, you know, that people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. Right. So um, they, they uh, present these ideas and uh, push them into people uh, and then turn them on each other to fight. Uh, so this is um, almost there's there's very few clear indications of that uh, than what we see in these very clearly defined um, decades as we go along. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everything about the 80s. Well, you know what? You want, to, you want to hear the best example that I always give if people don't really get the whole change in the decades? Just look at the color schemes used. 50s, kind of drab. 
you know, kind of kind of square. 60s, you get the garish colors. Everything's uh, a great big fun party, all that kind of thing. 70s, boom, back to dark, gritty, drab, grayscale, like all that kind of stuff. 80s, nope, other way, right back in the other direction. Big bright pastels everywhere. 90s, boom, everyone's wearing black and life sucks and blah, blah, blah. Orange, baby. And yep. flannel. And flannel, and flannel. I, I, I was a bit of a pioneer of the grunge era, uh, being, <laughs> you know, a very big fan of the 80s hair metal, or if Jason wants to call it butt metal. Butt rock. Butt rock. Butt rock. Butt rock. <laughs> anyway, but yeah. Rock, rock, rock. But, uh, I, I also liked some of the, the transito- transitionary bands like Alice in Chains and uh, that kind of stuff that, that kind of led into the 90s, but steered more towards the grunge side of things like so yeah i was and, um yeah i was a bit of a weird kid in high school, school and that sort of stuff yeah <laughs> I, I wore my flannel shirt with my cowboy boots i was a rebel wayne you were a weird kid <laughs> what oh yes no way i can't Thanks, no attest to that when i was in high school i looked like if weird al yankovic and uh, uh sammy hagar had a love child together that's what i looked like Okay, so you can't drive fifty-five. Well, I'm trying to think of a weird outtake on that, but (laughs) wow. Okay, you're you're driving driving a Ferrari with an accordion. Pretty much, yeah, Yeah. with no fashion sense either. So, okay, good stuff. (laughs) So, how about something else that was huge in the '80s? And they did do this in earlier decades, but I remember becoming just super important uh, to, to young, very young children. And that's Saturday morning cartoons, which we can then tie into the, the weekday shows uh, that, that I was really big into. Well, I watched the Saturday morning cartoons as well, but of course I was younger then. Uh, the amount of stuff that's probably in those that I'm just not remembering is probably insane. But do you remember they, they'd even have preview shows uh, for the upcoming yes. fall season? Cause the fall season was a big deal. New shows are coming out in the fall. Uh, I wonder why. And they they what would it be like eight a I'm trying to remember now eight a.m. maybe to eleven a.m. something like that maybe all the way up till noon, uh, but you know you're getting up on your own parents don't really want anything to do with you at that point you're getting a bowl of cereal and you're plopping down in front of the TV every Saturday morning and watching the Smurfs and God knows what else I can't even remember anymore. I'm, what do you guys think? Oh yeah, I remember this very well. This was kind of a rite of passage if you were a child in the eighties. Saturday morning cartoons now. Let's paint a picture for people who may not be old enough to remember this time. Uh, back then, you didn't typically have cartoons on like like you do now. Like you have now, you have Disney Channel, Cartoon Network. There's cartoons on twenty four seven now. Back then, you had Saturday mornings, and that was about it until uh, like later on, towards the mid eighties. Finally, you started getting cartoons in syndication on the weekdays, like right after school let out like well, there in, was, in the it, afternoon, three thirty, four o'clock, that kind of thing. Was still but, in you know, I'm a little bit older and they still have that, but that was typically on your that one independent channel, right? So right. that if that would give you an after school a uh, couple you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half after school you get Speed Racer, um or, or uh, Felix the Cat. We're talking really old cartoons there. Um but but not much and, and all the good cartoons were on Saturday morning. And Precisely. I, I didn't to watch the Saturday morning cartoons, you know, with the Aquaman, Superman, and uh, Super Friends, and that sort of stuff. So um, uh, all my friends got to watch Love it. I didn't Super get Super Friends. That's, 
I didn't get to watch the Saturday morning cartoon, so I felt a little <laughs> left out. But I ended up, um, uh, I watched Rocky and Bullwinkle. Woo! No, it's me, Pooh the Rabbit. And that twisted me for life because it was political satire, right? So little did I know what I was getting into there. Uh, but, but yeah, they, they, uh, as you mentioned, Wayne, so it did go back a little bit further because certainly I, I grew up with the, the Saturday morning cartoon being available, but it was a, a block of time from about 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. and then usually sports would come on uh, on Saturdays. But uh, you have that one-hour block in the afternoon on the independent station um, that you'd get some some cartoons or kids programming, um, HR Puff and stuff, or weird stuff. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, or some Boy, they were puffing some stuff down at the HR, were, huh? Some, I watched a YouTube video of that the other day and I was just like holy cow I can't believe that ever got made I, I don't even know what's going on it's just amazing just I mean those guys were dropping acid or something it was just crazy stuff um, I can't even believe that stuff hit the airwaves but but yeah that's um, it, it took a certainly a, a, a very different turn uh, from my viewpoint after the 80s into the late 80s early 90s certainly uh, where, where that big stuff became available all the time especially again with the advent of cable TV and you had more outlets for it and um, then there were multiple UHF channels you know not just the uh, not just the one or two but you have uh, the airwaves begin to fill up um, you know, with all kinds of channels of things, and 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 so they began to be able to do more narrow casting rather than broadcasting, um, so so um, uh, and specialized content. But yeah, the cartoons. Um, as I watch them now, the I mean, the only time that I watch them is to specifically like to look at research, and I'm I'm shocked at um, some of the themes that are put into kids' cartoons that are not just very adult and theme oriented but um all the stuff that we talk about in terms of you know truth in the movies and lies in the news i mean that stuff is all over um kids programming and uh, all the uh, illuminati symbolism uh, that you find in in cartoons going back through the the 70s and 80s is remarkable i just can't believe the number of eyes and pyramids and um uh, snakes and owls and it's just <laughs> It's crazy. Like I, I just never, you know, never would have thought. It is uh, they start them off young. That's for sure. Oh yeah, and a perfect example of this to look at from the '80s is the GI Joe cartoon. My heavens, did they put some stuff in there, like some some hardcore truth in there? Yeah. Uh, the one episode has Cobra Commander brainwashing people through the TV, and uh, you know things currency? like that. Currency. I mean, Cobra currency. Yeah. yeah. You know, I love the concept behind G.I. Joe, though. Just who the hell was Cobra Commander that he had enough money to have infrastructure and armies and technologies that could fight the United States government? Like, holy crap, who the hell was this dude? (laughs) I had his own harbor ray. He had a weather dominator. (laughs) Oh, oh, weather control. Nothing about that. No, no, no. Nothing like geoengineering. Mm -mm. Mm -mm, Nothing like that. Ooh, no. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, chemtrails are fake, but um, but geoengineering, we might have to do that. It's a bad idea, but we're <laughs> going to have to pull off the sun. We, we have no choice. We have to do it. We have to do this whole runaway global warming. My yes, heavens. We're, yes, we're, we're going to try to save you. Although I did see an article today that says uh, solar minimum for 30 years and mini ice age coming at you. So they don't know which, which way to turn now. Wait, that's well, from that, today? That's what they were. That was from today, yeah. Well, well what do we have to give Al Gore to make it okay? 70s? 
Pardon me? Wasn't that the 70s narrative? Are we going Yes, that was the 70s now? narrative. Yeah, we're, we're, we're recycling it. But no, this was an article today. Uh, yeah. I think uh, Science Journal um, that uh, solar, a new solar minimum, uh, they're predicting a, a mini ice age for the next 30 years. I'm like, you guys make up your mind. Um, so yeah, they went from uh, ice age to global warming uh, to now it's just climate change because the, you know they, they don't want to be held accountable for uh, for their predictions anymore. Well, because they, they can't be wrong then. <laughs> it's so, just... It's just it's your fault. Give us money. <laughs> How dare you? My TV done told me if I give him money, my weather be gooder. Uh, who was I just saying here. this to? That that only man. I just had this conversation. Was it yesterday? Like uh, they're sticking it in our face so bad that an actually mentally challenged girl is put front and center to yell at people. And most people aren't picking up on the fact that, and I'm going to use a non-PC word here, she's <gasps> retarded. Look oh. at her. She is retarded. She would ride the short bus to go to school. Like, come on, man. They have a, a poor little retarded girl yelling at you. And the moment she's off script, she doesn't know what the hell to say. And I've seen enough clips of it to know that yeah. that's true. I mean, come on, man. They're taking the piss out of all of us. They're giving us the finger and spitting in our face couldn't be more obvious and, it, no. and I mean, it, but if you if i mean if it weren't that look the number of people that believe that there's a tesla roadster in space <laughs> i mean you can tell it's it's real because it looks so fake and and he specifically and blatantly clearly frankly said um it's not space hardened or anything it's just a, a regular car in space well i mean if you know anything about what the space is supposed to be um you know 10 to the minus 17 tour vacuum and um, more than 25 2800 degree fahrenheit differences between the the sun side and the i mean the car would have disintegrated immediately and people love it they uh, and they get angry if you if you try to tell them it's not true so uh, whether yeah uh, whether it's greta or whether it's elon um they lie to you to in your face and um you know, the cognitive dissonance is too much. If you don't believe it, you have to admit you've been lied to. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that whole that's true. <laughs> Air pressure in space. How does that work with tires? Well, exactly. So, I mean, if you think about the, <laughs> physics, the physics, a regular tire, right? It would immediately regular tire, cold, right? Right, regular tire would have gotten immediately because at least on the moon landings, they tried to bullshit us that uh, yeah. there was something different about the moon buggy tires. I don't remember what what cock and bull story they said but it, but with this it's just no no it's just a regular car yeah rubber freezes at about i mean it freezes into a crystalline solid at about minus 40 degrees fahrenheit so we're talking it would have gone uh, but it's supposed to be in the cold side minus 1800 degrees fahrenheit right so it would have turned into immediately a crystalline solid and then the air pressure right 10 to the minus 17 tour and you're looking at uh, pressure disequilibrium uh, it tries to resolve itself it would have instantly i mean the, the entire car would have it just demolished it it would have disintegrated into nothing in a fraction of a second and it just sat there pretty. I mean, you think of all the little plastic pieces on the dashboard. You think of the uh, the leather of the seats, right? So in the sun, it's supposed to be, uh, you know, again, 4, 12 to 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit mm -hmm. and about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit cold, minus uh, in the cold side. And so you've got one side of the car in the in the sun and one side not at 10 to the minus 17 tour. Um, and, but it was pristine and just floating out there in space and looking ever so much like um, a heavy metal intro. Um, First thing I noticed, yep. <laughs> I even did that at my presentation at the conference back in uh, November, and I went, "Oops, yeah. sorry, wrong, wrong image. How'd that get in there?" <laughs> so yeah, perfect. Uh, but they but are. You have to remember, yeah. though, 
Remember? Remember? Remember Heavy Battle? Remember? You've seen this before. (laughs) You have to remember, though, the Lunar Lander got through space, made of tinfoil and stuff, and had no problems. So, you know, why wouldn't the uh, the regular vehicle, the regular car, survive in space? In fact, according to the... They they used their finest quality cardboard and tinfoil to put the Lunar Lander together. According to the designers of the the Lunar Limb, uh, the Eagle... It had uh, about three one hundredths uh, of an inch uh, of, of foil, and in fact, if you if you weren't careful, you could poke your finger through it. Yet it was pressurized to fourteen point seven psi. Yeah. So yeah. again, again, ten to the minus seventeen tor. If you if you look at um, you can go to YouTube right now and look at a video uh, of a of a tanker car that gets a, a vacuum put on it, which is uh, four thousand orders of magnitude less vacuum, and it implodes um, instantaneously so uh, again it's pressure disequilibrium right so I mean like submarines that go uh, four or five atmospheres of pressure that's four or five atmospheres that pressure disequilibrium is 10,000 times different than a full pressure going into space because it's the disequilibrium right so I mean if you think that um, like tinfoil that you can stick your finger through is going to be safe going underwater right um, it wouldn't even do that, but but we're supposed to believe that it's pressurized to, to 14.7 psi and surviving in the vacuum of space uh, and, and uh, radiation and yeah, it's just nah, it'll be so, fine. Don't worry about it. So ridiculous. <laughs> um, it's okay. Everybody, get on board the tweaker rocket. Let's go. Exactly. <laughs> it make it makes me like furious when it, when they sit there and light you know and talk about it and then and then say yeah we we debunked all these uh you know uh moon landing deniers and i just want i just want to throat punch them it's like when, when i hear don pettit talk i, I just like i'd go to the moon in a nanosecond but but we destroyed that technology and it's a painful process to build it back up again oh man <laughs> I, I, uh you know, that's another guy who looks like he's not quite right in the head. Every time I see a clip of him, he's got googly eyes. I'm like, did somebody just bitch slap him right before he got on camera? And something's not right. Uh, he licked the short. He licked the windows of the short bus. Uh, uh, pretty I think sure he was eating man. gummy bears off the underneath I, the seats or something. I don't know. But I'm pretty, uh, sure, he, I'm pretty sure he's the guy that wore the helmet on the short bus too. Yeah, yeah, I think he. And and we've gotten way off of uh, 1980s uh, TV, but on 1980s TV, of course, was um, the uh, the Challenger uh, explosion. Yeah, uh, I remember that huh? day actually. Uh, Got sent home from school. Yeah, seven, uh, six of seven astronauts are still alive. Um, so we got that going for us, which is nice. <clears throat> uh, so you can look that up if you're not convinced about that. Just to just you know, do a quick uh, consult the Oracle for um, uh, Challenger astronauts still alive, and some of them, and all but one of them, them have been found. Change their names. Yeah, they didn't even change their names. Uh, <laughs> two of them have identical twin brothers. <laughs> what are the odds of that? Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's uh, pretty pretty amazing. Um, that uh, in fact, I just saw a video um, the other day of somebody who went and um, uh, confronted um, the pilot uh, Mickey. Mike Smith was that his name, um, and, and he did such a bad job of lying. Oh, uh, really? He, I haven't seen that one. Uh, oh, yeah, you can. This is uh, recent. He, yeah, D. Marble put it up. Um, somebody uh, recently went and met, met him at his home. Uh, and he, you know, <laughs> um, teaches. Uh, he was teaching um, at a, um, at a at a college. He was a professor at a college, and they they met him at his home at a, outside his garage, and. Uh, 
as soon as he started asking, he's like, "Oh, you, you, you know, the, some people think," and he's like, "Oh, yeah, they're they're wrong. That's that's not. Uh, I, I'm not." And then he says, "Yeah, we we, we do look a lot alike, but uh, it's not it's not you know that's not me." Um, it, he was such a bad liar. And take a look at it if you if uh, I know D Marble his channel. Uh, he put it up. He mirrored it. So um, you take a look at that. Just um, take a look at YouTube. Um, you know, after we get done with the stream, and um, yeah. I know we've, but yeah, that was uh, the the space shuttle, um, this uh, amazing flying plane. And again, if, if you study anything about physics, you want to go back and look at um, uh, the story of the SR seventy one. You can find YouTube videos about that and all the trouble they had to get this plane to fly Mach three, right? Which, which is uh, pretty fast, about twenty one hundred miles an hour. Um, but it was you know made of titanium and it literally stretches um, almost three feet front to back during flight because yep. of. Um, uh, because of air friction, uh, and in fact, it weeps uh, fuel sitting on the ground because they could never find a polymer uh, that would hold those tanks closed, and so it like literally leaks fuel on the ground, uh, and, and so um, that's that's just 2,100 miles an hour. So we're supposed to have these these rockets, right, that go 17,500 miles an hour. It's got to go over 21,000 miles an hour to get into orbit, uh, and uh, so. Again, uh, there's not. I mean, these things are supposed to be made out of aluminum, but the air, the friction uh, of air would cause them it would cause it to melt. The the uh, melting temperature of aluminum, I think it's only like eleven, twelve hundred degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So it would meet. I mean, they they would. Uh, it's a it's a nonsense story that they're telling us. And um, but yeah, anyway, this is uh, uh, the big space shuttle thing was was a big deal. Oh, the reason I got here is if you look at. Um, uh, jet pilot training, right? You can see some of the jet pilot training and watch them um, pass out uh, when they encounter four or five Gs, and um, we see what the what it takes to do that. Again, these jet these are uh, Mach one um, type maneuvers, um, and then you watch uh, what sp the uh, space shuttle guys uh, going in their um, motorcycle helmets, and they just sit there and sort of bounce around, and they're supposed to be going, you know, seventeen, eighteen thousand miles an hour, and they're just sort of it looks like a bad TV show. It looks like, um, you know, the the angle shots from Star Trek when they get hit by a a phaser and they kind of, you know, sh jump around. <laughs> it, it looks it looks like that. It's it's really pretty pitiful. Um, so so yeah, take a look at some of the old space shuttle footage and um, and, and you'll be amazed at what you believed. It's it's pretty pretty remarkable. So we're just about out of time here. Let's hit on our last point. And that's how you can see the changing of the decade right on TV because we have a show. We have a few shows that, that definitely carry from the 80s into the 90s. But the one that Wayne and I were talking about last night that really stands out is uh, Roseanne. And you can see how this has way more of a 90s feel than an 80s feel even though it started in the, at the end of the 80s. Uh, let's, let's make that our last point since we only got three minutes left. Wayne, you want to take that? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much you could see uh, right at the end of the decade of the 80s. Now, up until this point, they were kind of shifting things to kind of make the uh, quote-unquote father figure or the male authority figure into the butt of the joke of everything. So from there, they shift the Overton window just a, a smidge more to the right, and all of a sudden uh, you get the whole... Uh, the, the, the woman plays the lead, the feminist... Uh, part the feminist authority figure is the main character of the show right. and gets her way with everything and and that kind of thing and this this show is really what uh, pushed Roseanne Barr into stardom uh, she was a, a 
comedian that played in the clubs and stuff up until that point, but really didn't have a lot of uh, international fame like she did when until this show hit. So this is this is kind of what uh, rose her to stardom, and uh, you could see, uh, you know, just the kind of things, the agendas and stuff that she represented throughout the course of her career. You could see how this kind of shifted forward, and uh, there's the your big changeover. Uh, from the 80s into the 90s where now you're looking at uh, your traditional family unit is more of a thing of the past now and it's it's kind of an outdated type of a, a scenario for you know people to to want to cling to so this is kind of the, the impression they give you moving forward so you, you can see how it becomes a more female-dominated type era coming up. So this this is kind of what they were pushing. And, you know, this, this pulls forward even into today. So that's the thing. I mean, it's just a very subtle, uh, gradual shift of the Overton window towards these things. So this is the direction that they were going at that point. And you can see this played up in spades in the show Roseanne, because that's what closed out the decade is that kind of a, a type of a sitcom. And Roseanne and turned into one of the biggest shows of the 90s, by the way. So there you go. There's your tee-up. And now she talks about MK Ultra. So yeah, there you go. Remarkable, isn't it? Oh, nothing to see here. Move nothing on. to see here at all. Well, is there any last points anybody wants to get in? We're just about there at the uh, top of the hour, as Crow would say. Um, if I could, I'd just like to just really quick um, touch base on the um, – uh, from our previous stream, the uh, kind of the awakening project that I'm working on um, in getting people to uh, send me some information uh, so I can kind of look for a correlation. We've already gotten some really great early results. Um, and I, I don't want to tip the scales by, by letting you know early, too early what that is. But um, I was um, stunned by a couple of things. And um, I, I guess I'll kind of go into here. So I've got um, more of response than I expected, but enough that I want to get more uh, because I'm very close to having enough respondents to do actually um, a clinical study. There's actually enough um, data uh, that, that I really have enough metrics that we, we can actually do a double-blind study uh, that um, has uh, the margin of error within um, acceptable study limits. So um, we can actually do something real with this. And I've also got a friend of mine, um, I'm editing some books for him, and he runs uh, a data management company out of Salt Lake City, uh, and he's agreed to let me use a couple of his proprietary algorithms to, to do some more data um, some uh, pattern recognition stuff with this. So again, if you send me the information that your data is not going anywhere else, I promise. Um, but um, if you if you want to be a part of it, uh, email me uh, at unintended.consequences3, uh, unintended.consequences3 at gmail.com. Uh, and I'll tell you what, uh, what, what information I'm looking for from you. And we're going to um, hopefully going to enter phase two here pretty quick. Uh, and I'll start re re releasing some of those results. Uh, but one of the things that really surprised me was um, the transparency and um, really heartfelt um, responses I got from people and, and the emotional journey that they've gone through during this awakening um, thing. And so um, it has um, led me to, I think what you, um, I'm, I guess I'll put it here. I'm going to, uh, you heard it here first. I'm going to start a podcast uh, with that name, Unintended Consequences, that really, um, instead of focusing on these topics like you guys uh, do when I join with you is really focusing on that journey um, of the awakening process um, and start and uh, share a little bit more about that. So this has gone from a study into, um, I think, a full-blown thing. I'm going to do a, a podcast um, and uh, kind of still nailing that down, but to, to focus on these things and to, to see uh, what happens in our transition from uh, being in the matrix to, to waking up. 
So thanks to everybody who's uh, joined in so far. Really appreciate uh, your willingness to, to join in, in our process uh, of, of study. And if you want to join up, there's still time. Uh, again, email me at unintended.consequences3 at gmail.com. And Wayne is an author. Wayne, why don't you take a moment to talk about what you do? All right. Uh, I have some books available right now on Amazon and at pretty much other any other fine book retailer. Uh, my first book I wrote is called The Alchemical Tech Revolution, Fulfilling Ancient Esoteric Agendas Through the Use of High Technology. And uh, my most recent book is called The Autism Epidemic, Transhumanism's Dirty Little Secret. Very eye-opening book and uh, just uh, saw an article today uh, which actually is fulfilling something I predicted within that book. Uh, talks about how Elon Musk is uh, saying that he could use his Neuralink product that he's developing this year to uh, treat uh, things like autism and schizophrenia now. And uh, this is a prediction I made uh, a while back and when I wrote the book that you would see where they're, they're going to start touting these uh, brain-computer interface devices as a possible cures or treatments for these different kinds of disorders like that so that's something i talk about in that book so uh you know just uh an interesting little side note there just that that actually turned up today apparently he had said this on a podcast at some time in this past november that uh, this is going to be a possibility with this neural lace product that he's developing called Neuralink. So uh, it, it's interesting and it goes right along with my research into that subject and what I talk about in that book. So if anybody wants to check those out, I'd appreciate it. And I'm also working on my third book right now. That one's going to be called Cybernetic Messiah Building the Antichrist System. So that one's uh, going to be a very interesting and eye opening book, too. That so if anybody good. wants to. Yeah, yeah, it might be a little scary, but, you know, it's uh, going to be a lot of good information in there for people so they could kind of see the foundation of, uh, you know, how, how this whole uh, control grid is being built and, and how it uh, has its roots way back in the ancient past. So uh, it, it's interesting and eye-opening because this has been going on for a long, long time. This isn't just a recent thing. This is not just something that's been in the planning since the end of World War II, as most people might think. But it's been going on for a long, long time. So uh, that should be coming out sometime this spring. So if people want to check that out, that'd be great. Can't wait for that. That's awesome. All right. And, of course, my name is Jason Lindgren. I do Secrets of Saturn. I just released a new episode the other day with Mark Devlin where we discussed the James Bond franchise. I'll still do those solo shows when I have time. Of course, every week, 8 to 10 p.m. Uh, Central. We'll be doing these live streams. We're going to keep doing these for as long as people give a hoot. And uh, always find me on croachable7radio.com every single week. On this coming Thursday, uh, tomorrow, we are releasing John Brisson. We're going to be talking about gut health. Uh, he actually did the Shoot the Moon NYC conference that I did with Wayne where we showed the film. had Mark Devlin, John Brisson uh, put... Um, who am I forgetting? Wayne, who am I forgetting? Am I forgetting somebody? Just me. <laughs> well, you, yeah, you. And then, um, of course, our, our friend Billy Ray Valentine did uh, put it on with us. So anyway, live radio. Sometimes you forget things. Um, <clears throat> all right, and we want to do more of those, by the way. We're still trying to figure out where would be the best place. We're kicking around Philadelphia. A lot of people said they would come to New Orleans if I did it here, which would be easy on me, of course, because uh, this is my neck of the woods. So we're trying to figure that out. 
And uh, last but not least, don't forget our sponsor. Randy from Houston has a cool product called Lower the Friction. I have been getting four miles per gallon on average better since he uh, changed my oil and put it in there. So go to lowerthefriction.com, put in promo code SOS for 5% off. And if you do it, please let us know because we actually want to get testimonials. I, I know a good bit about this product. He gave me the full backstory, and it's not snake oil. It's not some made-up nonsense. I would never back something like that. Uh, it's definitely something that's been on the market before uh, under a different name, got pulled off by the gentleman who uh, had invented it. So there's a big story behind it. Maybe Randy will tell it sometime. Uh, I, d- I don't want to make the live stream just a great big commercial, so obviously I'm not going to do that for forever. But um, anyway, there it is. Thank you so much. We had over 200 people uh, for most of the live stream, so this is getting slowly but surely bigger. Thank you to everybody for showing up, and we will see you next week. Thank you, everyone.